And now, broadcasting live from the restaurant at the end of the universe, this is the history of the Atlantic world. And welcome to episode 1.7 of the History of the Atlantic World, the concluding chapter of Rise of the Conquistadors. I am your caffeinated host, Jesse Wiest. Thank you for joining us. Now, as an amateur historian, or at least someone playing one for the microphone, I will tell you that I believe, uh, as you might imagine, that historians generally do a better job of describing the past than social scientists do, anthropologists or sociologists, for example. But with that said, sometimes social scientists, social scientists excuse me, have a way of writing things succinctly that few historians can match. Eric Wolf is one such sociologist, and he is the author of a book called Europe and the People Without History, and he sums up the era we've been discussing in the past six episodes by saying that, quote, Portugal and Castile emerged as successful organizations of tribute takers, unquote. Now, that is a really fantastic one-sentence version of the last 15 or so hours of babbling that I've done. And if for some reason this is the first episode that you're listening to, then that pretty much should have you all caught up. So that leaves us in a place where we have before us a brave new world. The world of Christopher Columbus, where ocean-borne commerce across the Atlantic connects the peoples of Europe and Africa and buyers and sellers, masters and slaves, and everyone in between, using this newly created maritime highway, which brought disparate cultures in close contact with one another. It was very much a world of conquest and slavery and all the terrible things uh, those entail, and see our last six episodes for more on that. Yet this brave new world was not seen by most of the people involved as a say, a toxic sludge pit of dehumanization for the sake of commerce, which it very much was. And that's not solely because of willful ignorance on the part of the 15th century participants of the newly emerging Atlantic economy. And while this podcast is not really the time or place to discuss philosophy, suffice it to say, I want to say that much about life is paradoxical. Because as much as the Atlantic world was a terrible uh, place for, for many people, it was also a, a place and a place in time where for many, and maybe even most, who participated in this new economy, it, it wasn't uh, something horrible, but something, something good. Trade on the Atlantic meant new opportunities, 
for new fortunes, expanded horizons, an opportunity to meet new strangers who could become friends or allies, even lovers. Don't get me wrong, we will discuss plenty of terrible historical events in this episode, but as we conclude Rise of the Conquistadors, I want to show you this other, um, perhaps more familiar to us, um, aspect of how the early Atlantic operated. Because for many of the participants in Europe and Africa alike, Atlantic-based trade was a scary prospect, but likewise a great boon. If I may paraphrase from the character Little Red Riding Hood in the fantastic musical Into the Woods, the participants of the Atlantic world of the 15th century felt excited and scared about the prospects of this new world of Atlantic commerce. Introduction to the Atlantic let them know things now, many valuable things that they had not known before. Do not put their faith in a cape or a hood, for they will not protect you the way that they should. And one must take extra care with strangers, and even flowers have their dangers, and though different is exciting, nice is different than good. Isn't it nice to know a lot? Well, yes, it is. And a little bit not. Or at least that is how Stephen Sondheim might sum up the experience in a musical. Now, if that is a bit too jaunty for some of you, especially considering how awful my singing is, I sort of apologize, but I'm in a bit of a jovial mood myself, this being the end of our initial series. Now, anyway, one last thing before we dive into the material, or uh, I begin to relive my days in the theater anymore, I need to ask for just a minute of your time so that I can ask for your help to produce the Atlantic World podcast. And there are basically two really easy ways that you can pitch in. First, Please take a few minutes to write a written review for the podcast on iTunes, or uh, it doesn't really matter what you write, but the act of, of listeners writing written reviews triggers the mechanisms of the algorithms that govern iTunes, and, and, and that uh, governs what podcasts get promoted. Now, obviously, if you listen to another platform, you write the reviews there, but iTunes is, I think, by far the biggest platform to listening for podcasts is why I mentioned that one specifically. Um, now, frankly, this podcast is amazing. And so if you feel the same way, um, thank you so much for taking the time to write a few words as a review on iTunes for the show. Uh, that way, as many people as possible get to come along on this journey through time with us. Now, the other way you can help is to donate to the Atlantic World Podcast Patreon page. Now, episodes of the podcast will always be free, but they do cost me a decent chunk of change in order to do the research and to produce each episode as well as to do the marketing. And in addition, it costs me uh, some money to host the show online. Contributions really help cover these costs as well as to fund future projects like the uh, history of the Atlantic World vacations that I've got planned, um, which for interested listeners, we'll have more on that later. Um, now, as well as potential transformations to other media. Now, I think it would be pretty cool to one day edit these series down into books. And so if you can, please chip in to help finance the show. Uh, now, you can do so for as little as $1 per month on Patreon. Uh, you can search for us there, or you can click on the link on the SoundCloud page where I host the site. Now, what's really great about Patreon is uh, that you can help out with as little as $1 per month. That translates into roughly a buck or maybe a buck and a little bit of change per show. And for the amount of content 
which each episode is, um, that's a really great value. Uh, Anyway, uh, thanks for your time, and I appreciate your support. Now, finally, one last thing. If you are interested in following along on social media updates, uh, you can find us on Facebook by searching for Atlantic World History or on Twitter by at Atlantic1492. And I've also put up uh, a few maps as images um, that correspond with different episodes on my Instagram page. And if you want to follow along there, you can search for Atlantic World Podcast, though you would also be, I think, subjected to hiking pictures if you do that. Um, Anyway, thanks for your time. And again, I would really appreciate written reviews since they help spread the word of the podcast to uh, potential other listeners. And not to mention give me a chance to read feedback. Now, with that said, on to the show. Now, if we are going to talk about the world of Christopher Columbus, then we really need to spend a couple of minutes, I think, talking about the plantation complex, uh, because it is the economic engine that is making everything work. And I I know we've talked about it, uh, but it is seriously that important. And as we've previously discussed, um, Europeans were introduced to the plantation complex in the Middle Ages. Um, And the plantation complex, by the way, is a term coined by historian Philip Curtin, um, it's not something, a phrase that, that actual people in the 15th century would have used. Now, the, the plantation complex, it changed in significant ways when it exited the Mediterranean, though, and entered the Atlantic. And, and by the way, these changes are going to be amplified uh, once the plantation complex is, again, transported across the Atlantic to the Americas. Now, anyway, the biggest change is that in the Mediterranean, fewer of the plantation workers were slaves. Some were. But the workings of the trans-Saharan slave trade meant that far greater proportion of slave labor was not destined for agricultural work, but instead destined to be soldiers, domestic servants, concubines, harem guards, and other a variety of other Mediterranean occupations, which largely had were filled by slaves. And as the complex was exported into the Atlantic, though, uh, into the Canaries, the Azores, and Madeira, um, well. For one, Madeira and the Azores were uninhabited, and the Canaries, uh, while it had a, originally a substantial population of Guanche people, they were severely afflicted by a number of diseases by the late 1400s, and so these islands were all able to be dominated by a relatively small number of Europeans, thanks to Europe's maritime ability. But they needed people to work this land, and, and the problem was most easily solved by purchasing labor in the form of slaves from Africa. Now, while the Spanish and Portuguese crowns are who finance all of this, or in large parts, um, they are not the only ones. Merchants, shipmasters, and capitalists are involved in undertaking the early Atlantic conquests, and these aren't necessarily Spanish or Portuguese people. It was the Genoese who brought sugar production technology out from the Mediterranean into the Atlantic, and without their technology, expertise, and additional capital, well, Spain and Portugal wouldn't have known where to start. Um, and it's, far to, it's fair to point out that uh, most, I think, of the, uh, of the original funding did come, I think, specifically from Prince Henry on, say, Madeira. But he wasn't the only one, and neither were the Genoans, merchants from southern Germany whose transalpine contacts with Italy enabled them to be connected to the Atlantic, also provided a lot of funding. And and what I'm saying is that this is just a multinational effort right from the beginning by necessity. Madeira, specifically, while it's great to travel 
while it's great for sugar production climactically, was difficult to travel to. And so in addition from what we've mentioned so far, um, since it was hard to get to from Genoa, Spain, or Portugal, but relatively easier to sail to and from Antwerp, um, sugar refineries and distributions uh, networks for northern Europe start growing out of Europe's lowlands in the 15th century. And we're not going to be talking about the Dutch a whole lot yet. But they, along with, of course, France and England, are looming in the distance. They are watching, they are learning, and they will soon be stealing from the Spanish and the Portuguese uh, sugar empires as they attempt to cement their own places within this new world. Now, all of that is some time off for us, I mean, episode-wise anyway, but it's important for us to remember that going forward, sugar is the economic engine that is driving everything. Now, The European conquistadors had basically discovered by the mid to late 15th century that eastern navigational technology, combined with the new ships which had blended Nordic and Mediterranean techniques and had connected European markets, northern and southern European markets, to one another, could also be used to create overseas markets, anywhere they could sail and establish themselves. Now, sometimes this required some degree of force. And so that is exactly why... Uh, the other major way in which the sugar, the or I, I, yeah, the uh, plantation complex changes, is that um, these European merchants in the Mediterranean, these Genoese merchants and stuff, who has been fully in control of this, and they still kind of are, start getting really chummy with the European conquistadors um, by the 15th century, and and that's because, well, they kind of need each other. Um, the conquistadors are looking oftentimes for wealth and land. Um, which they can obtain by um, helping merchants set up uh, new plantations. And so these, these two, I guess, classes of people are starting to intermarry a good bit. Um, and anyway, that besides the, the greater, far greater um, importance of slavery and labor, um, that's the other, another major way that the plantations are changing. Now, when... Europeans are sailing to the new lands, um, and they find some like new land, for example, that they think is good for great for sugar. They basically had four um, four basic strategies to to employ. Now, obviously, the easiest one is that the land was unoccupied, and they would simply try to colonize, exploit it commercially. I mean, especially if it was good for for agriculture, and especially if by agriculture we specifically mean sugar. Now, this. Generally speaking, unoccupied land basically always meant a small island, and these islands made preferential bases anyway for the conquistadors since these amplified the advantages which they had obtained from having these powerful ocean-going vessels. But usually, land was unoccupied, and so that meant dealing with native peoples who were not necessarily interested all the time in trading with outsiders, some were, some weren't, and obviously none of them were really interested in being conquered. So in that case, if the land the Europeans sailed to wasn't uninhabited, they attempted one of the other three methods at their disposal. First, the simplest, was simply to live and trade with native peoples, either as a ruler, as the Peraza did on Gomera, undoubtedly the preferable outcome for most would-be conquistadors, for sure, or as a trader, 
such as the Portuguese Lancados, those merchants and others who left Europe to make a home in Africa, essentially living with and forming a partnership with foreign peoples. Now, the next method used by Europeans was basically outright trade. This is what happened with um, the West African states and the Portuguese. Now, and of course, the final method of European colonization was outright conquest. And this happened eventually on the other Canary Islands. Now, as we have seen, these methods all kind of blend together a little bit in some ways. Opening new trade routes often required at least some degree of force, if not outright violence. And likewise, during the course of the conquest of an island, oftentimes peaceful trade would occur in between violent encounters. And, and this, these peaceful, and, uh, this peaceful trade could sometimes go on for periods as long as years on end. Um, now, in today's episode, we will, as you might imagine, focus quite a bit on these themes, and of course, of the horror and terror uh, which those who became conquered or enslaved or killed outright or tortured to death um, uh, felt. But since we focused on that pretty much on every episode, at least somewhat, I also want to talk about the creation of the Atlantic world in, in, that, in a different way today in our final episode, before moving on to our second series, because despite the absolute human carnage which Europeans leave in their wake as they create the Atlantic world, not to mention the destruction from the slave trade once these, you know, these quote-unquote peaceful trade routes are created. Now, believe it or not, for a great many people, perhaps I think even the majority who are connected to the Atlantic in both Europe and Africa, the new Atlantic economy was a marvelous, wonderful thing. Obviously, the enslaved did not feel this way, or those, for example, shot in the face with a cannonball from some Portuguese caravel. But it is important to remember that for all of these people, if you took away all the danger the Atlantic world represented, they still lived in a life of constant, unexplainable death anyway. So in today's episode, I want to talk about what the creation of the Atlantic world meant for those people, because for most Europeans, and I think even most Africans, certainly, uh, the most the newly developed wealth and markets of the Atlantic world far outweighed uh, whatever co the costs, or potential costs, I should say, akin, I think, to how many Americans and Russians probably felt as the result of the advances in technology that went along with the space race. You know, the goals of winning the space race had an awful lot to do with world domination, which is something the Spanish and Portuguese monarchies definitely would have understood. And the Cold War was hardly a bloodless thing. But think of all the advances in technology, the advances in, in human knowledge that took place because of the space race. Now, I was born in 1981, so I'm a little too young to really imagine what it would have been like, as my parents and grandparents did, to feel what it must have been like to experience that firsthand but I guess to put this into context, exactly what I'm talking about, what, what I want to impart on you, obviously, for example, like, you know, the 50s and 60s were not great times for everyone, obviously. But the sense of prosperity and optimism in the future that existed was also real. But I still, I, I understand it a bit because growing up in the 80s and 90s, I still grew up with a keen belief in the American dream. And, and really, I think that the space race is sort of an amplification of that feeling. Needless to say... Without the space race and everything that has come, come from it, I am dubious about whether or not I would be broadcasting this podcast to you over the internet right now. Now, 
For most Europeans and Africans who engaged in these new trading relationships of the 15th century, I think a similar sense of wonder also existed. Now, I want to read a bit from John Thornton's Cultural History of the Atlantic World here, because I, he writes the sentiments that I'm trying to express far more eloquently than, than I could. Quote, None of the participants of the early Atlantic trade took very long to realize that the people they met shared their common humanity and did not resemble any of the monsters that, for example, European fantasy writers, precursors of the modern creators of science fiction, imagined might be in the remote corners of the world. If European exploration revealed nothing else, it was that there were no one-legged men with a single eye in the middle of their foreheads, as described in the celebrated fantasy adventures of John of Mandeville. Europeans and Africans, and later Americans, discovered a common humanity in their physical forms and in their lives. Their pre-industrial world was united by common rhythms of life and death, bound by the limits of a constricted food supply, beset by diseases that could not be cured. In this society, or excuse me, in this world, no society had a life expectancy of more than about 40 years, and many had less. One out of three or four babies did not survive their first year of life. And on the whole, only half of those who were born managed to live long enough to reproduce themselves. This immense human wastage, sometimes made even worse in the harshest labor and social regimes, such as slavery, rent-racking, and heavy taxation, meant that even birth rates far in excess of those today produced relatively little population growth." Unquote. Now, all of this sounds a little dark, admittedly, but this knowledge that, hey, hey, there's people just like me all over the globe. Well, this was a new idea. And that new idea came alongside new opportunities for obtaining new goods, to make new profit streams, to obtain new technology, new sources of news and information, and every other opportunity that comes from being connected to a, a more broad web of human contact. In short, I, this is nothing less than the American dream. Well, technically, it was occurring in Africa and Europe, and so I guess it's a, an African and European dream. And while this might be a little bit shocking to you, well, you might be really shocked then to discover that in this episode entitled The World of Christopher Columbus, we will not be ending up in America. We will end up in India. More on that soon enough. I certainly doubt most Europeans thought of this newly developed Atlantic world, created by conquest and fueled by all the death involved in the slave trade, in those terms, other than the conquistadors anyway. I think it is far more likely instead that they thought of it primarily as access to exotic markets where they could find cheap labor, leather, hides, cloth, iron, copper, gold, gum, ivory, 
And similarly, for most Africans engaged in the African trade, European shipping was just a, a chance to obtain goods or wealth by trading for iron, copper, cowrie shells, cloth, and other European goods. And, and if the idea of getting goods and products from other countries and other continents doesn't sound you know, weird or awesome to you, well, that just goes to show you how transformative this was. Historians have termed this the Consumer Revolution. And here, in the early overseas trade occurring between Europe and Africa in the 15th century, we have the roots of it on display. Now, this sense of wonderment, though, went beyond consumerism. The growing connections between Europeans and Africans and soon Americans instilled so much curiosity in these people about one another that eventually it launched new sciences and the very concept of scientific empiricism. Mere contact, let alone introduction to new ideas, created an expanded mental horizon for those who found themselves attached to the Atlantic world. The, I think the great historian Felipe Fernandez Armesto argues that in the years leading up to Columbus, before Americans even get introduced to our story, that when Europeans met black Africans and noble savages on the Canaries, that this should be described as nothing less than the discovery of man. For while in the early years of European conquest, in, in the Middle Ages, the people they met were recognizably akin to the colonists, even when they were infidels, schismatics, or sards. But by the second half, of the 15th century. New peoples encountered in the course of Atlantic expansion meant it was possible to respond with neither the same familiarity nor quite the same contempt as they held, for example, North African Moors. So by the time Christopher Columbus was growing up to be a young man, he is feeling this, he is experiencing this, and so is everyone basically in Portugal and Spain as in Benin and Congo, and all the places in between. Everywhere it was the same. People obsessed with a single question. When faced with all of these new, new concepts and new people and new ideas, they started to ask, what is a human being? Now, of course, the mere act of navigating the seas to buy and sell commercial goods in far-off places led to greatly increased geographical knowledge as well. And so cartography, cosmography, and navigation all saw leaps in their respective fields in this time period. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a medieval tea map, uh, which places Jerusalem in the center of the earth and from which Europe, Africa, and Asia are all arranged around it. But it is it's kind of a comical-looking thing to the modern eye, um, especially in comparison to the maps which European mapmakers begin to make to help navigate during the 15th century, which were practical instruments, not devotional objects, and which began to show the same interest to realism as Renaissance artists did with naturalism, for example. Now, all of this new information, if you will, is really going to take on a whole new dimension once Europeans realize that, in fact, tremendous numbers of people exist in the Americas, 
who are very definitely not even in the Bible, and therefore might not even be sons of Adam. And what does all that mean? What is a human being? Well, I mean, we'll jump in the gun a little bit with all that. So I think I'm going to leave that where it is for right now. But of course, we're going to be getting back to that topic in more detail in the future. For now, I think the best course for us to take is to continue to follow along with the Portuguese as they continue their lead over the Spanish, the way down the African coast, even after the death of Prince Henry in 1461 and the Luso-Castilian War of 1475 to 79. The mission to boldly go where none had gone before, at least by sea. To find India, and to establish trading relations with Prester John, who was somewhere over there. Europe was certain of it. Well, the best place for us to pick back up, I think, with that story is with Diago Gomez. Now, he went to Africa twice, shortly after Cadamasto, if you remember him, and he is the last of the Henrican-sponsored voyagers to Africa. And Gomez left us an account that details his two voyages, but which unfortunately comes down to us in history in an unsatisfactory state, according to G.R. Crone, the editor of The Voyages of Catamasto and Other Documents on West Africa. And that's because Gomez's account was taken down years later by uh, a man named Martin Behaim. And, and Gomez was pretty obsessed with the fact by that point, and, and frankly, the, it was pretty obsessed with the fact that on his second voyage, whereupon he sailed with Antonio de Noli, um, who returned to Portugal quicker than Gomez, and while he, who was driven contrary, uh, by a contrary wind to the Azores, um, Gomez was obsessed with the fact that because of this, de Noli alone took the credit for the news that they had discovered a new island and alone received the captaincy of said island. And so, um, nevertheless, here we go. Now, Diago Gomez was, like I said, the last captain appointed by Prince Henry before his death, and probably the first Portuguese to sail to pass uh, Cape Verde, where he reached the mouth of the River Gambia. Now, years later, when he began to recount all of this, he was quite delighted to remember all of the wildlife he saw. Thousands of animals like deer. He saw five elephants. Many, many crocodile holes. And this is definitely the sort of thing that G.R. Crone complains about. Details which he absolutely wasn't interested in. The next day after um, his arrival at the Gambia, um, Gomez was met with a chief named Frangazic, who was the nephew of the great prince of the region. Gomez reported that he received 180 aretes worth of gold in exchange for his merchandise of mostly cloth necklaces. The aretel is an Arabic measurement, by the way, equal to about 2 kilograms, so about 90 kilograms worth of gold, if you are curious. The Africans warned Gomez that the people on the other side of the river, though, were absolutely not to be trusted and would kill Christians— and had done so in the past, and one has to wonder if they were simply trying to keep all of the trade for themselves, but I digress. Now, you might, men <laughs> I, I think it's also important to note that um, 
Gomez is given credit for being the first to reach here. And then when he gets here, uh, Frankazek and the other Africans tell him uh, that some other Africans there had killed Christians in the past. So I think what we should say is that Gomez is the first uh, to return from that side of part of Africa. Gomez, anyway, went up the river about 50 leagues after meeting uh, with Frangazik to a large town named Cantor. There, um, uh, he made it known to the, peop- to the people of that country he had come to trade merchandise. In consequence of this, the Africans came in very great numbers. When the report spread throughout the country that the Christians were in Cantor, natives came together from all quarters, from Tambuktu in the north, from the Seregalay in the south, and there came also people from Kiokun, which is a great city surrounded by a wall of baked tiles, and from where Gomez understood there was abundance of gold. He spent some time learning about the routes one might take to get to those different places before receiving, making word that he wished to make peace with the great chief on the other side of the river. His name was Batamansa, and eventually he and Gomez met on the bank of the Gambia. Batamanza brought with him an immense throng of people, armed with poisoned arrows, azagays, swords, and shields. As Gomez went to him, carrying him some presents and biscuit and some wine, for he noted they had no wine except for that which was made from date palm, Batamansa in exchange gave Gomez three negroes, one male and two female. And the king was pleased and extremely gracious, making merry with Gomez, and swearing to the Portuguese by the one true God that he would never again war against the Christians, but that they might travel safely through his land and exchange their merchandise. He must not have tasted that biscuit after saying that. That's all I can say. I, I can't imagine the biscuits aboard Portuguese sailing vessels in the 15th century were anything, were worth making merry. Let me just say that. At any rate, Gomez also sent ashore an Indian slave named Jacob in case they were near India. Obviously, this didn't work out so well. And he took great pains to make peace with a certain chief named Nomimans, who had done all of the previous mischief against the Christians, according to Batamansa. Gomez sent him many presents, for for Nomimans, Gomez thought, possessed land which was plentiful with salt. And when they met, Gomez claimed that Nomimans desired to be baptized after they had a conversation about religion. Nomimans was a Muslim, and this conversation, if it happened, this conversion, excuse me, if it happened, did not last, and it was probably just Nomimans trying to do his part to establish good trading relations. But nevertheless, the next day, Gomez entertained uh, the king and 12 of his principal chiefs and eight of his wives to dine on board the caravel. Additional gifts were given. Gomez explained that it would be really awesome if Batamansa would be baptized, but also that he could not baptize him himself, because, but he would send a priest, and shortly afterwards he departed. Now, Diago Gomez stated that no one went back to Guinea for two years after this, since uh, King Afonso was busy leading a, gigant- a gigantic fleet of three 120 ships he had purchased, rented, or requisitioned in some way uh, in Morocco. But eventually, Gomez got to take another journey, and so he returned, despite the fact that on his first voyage, a number of his crew had become extremely ill in their time in Africa. 
And so, when Gomez was able to procure the necessary supplies for a second voyage, he decided this time to purchase ten horses for trade, though he noted sourly when he arrived that prices were dropping. For whereas the Moors used to give seven Negroes for one horse, he says, they now give no more than six. While in Africa, Gomez also learned of another very richly laden caravel which was illegally trading and which sailed under the captaincy of a man named Prado and apparently did not have Enrique's permission. So Gomez ordered one of his men, Goncalo Ferreira, on pain of death and confiscation of his goods to go to Cape Verde and look out for that caravel, which he did and took it and found great booty in it. Then... Gomez ordered Ferreira to go back to Portugal with the captured captain and an account of the events. Now, meanwhile, Gomez and Antonio de Noli, the captain of the other ship on this expedition, saw the Cape Verde Islands, which Gomez says he discovered. Whether or not that is true is uncertain, but he was definitely at least one of the first Europeans to see them, and the... Gomez and Denoli, their, their crew, explored the islands. They saw no signs of any people, but they did find an abundance of fish, streamlets of fresh water, excellent soil, um, and a little more detail, though, can be gleaned from that, but, you know, other than the Cape Verde Islands would make for excellent uh, agricultural bases, is what he's saying, getting at. Um, and that's because shortly afterwards, like I said, he was driven by contrary winds to the Azores. And in the meantime, his partner, Denoli, was able to return to Portugal, and he got all the credit. Now, Gomez does provide one more, I think, interesting piece of information, though, and that is that the, cap the captured Captain de Prado, who was charged with carrying arms to the Moors, was taken prisoner by Goncalo Ferreira, and when they returned to Portugal... He was laying in irons and martyrized in a cart and thrown into a furnace of fire with his sword and gold. Which, alrighty then, don't get caught going to Africa without the king's permission. Got it. Now, we don't have a whole lot of information about what's going on for the next few years, if anything. Um, but it's quite possible that in the immediate aftermath of the death of Henrique, it might have taken a few years for the Portuguese to really get organized again with continued exploration along the African coast. Or they could have just been busy trading with regions of Africa already explored. Or we maybe just don't have the surviving records. We do know that the Portuguese began to colonize the island of Santiago on the Cape Verde Islands in, for, by 1466. And we know that since uh, Dom Afonso granted his brother, the Prince Dom Fernando, the rights of trade at Santiago in that year by royal decree. Now, from this letter, we know a little bit about the colonization efforts there. First, not many people were willing to go live there. Because of this, Fernando had incurred great costs in attempting to settle the island, and because he had to give uh, those who went very wide privileges and franchises to, um, to even go at his expense. And, and so... Um, for this reason, uh, the king's decree also exempted the islanders from taxes, which other Portuguese subjects had to pay, and uh, to attract more more potential colonists. And 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 these are going to become the sorts of common incentives that a lot of European monarchs are going to use to try to attract colonists in the future in their far flung colonies. Now, despite these incentives, 
the Cape Verdes are really far from Portugal. And so what with all the hassle involved for the crown in governing and supplying the Cape Verde, it really kind of made the venture a bit too expensive um, uh, for their tastes. And so uh, I guess the next big step forward in the space race for overseas trade was uh, when the Portuguese monarchy decided to lease the monopoly of trade on West Africa coast to a private citizen. Fernão Gomes in 1469. The lease was for five years, on condition that he secured the exploration of 100 leagues of new coastline beyond Sierra Leone each year. Now, he must have been making an absolute fortune, because Gomes paid for this privilege 200,000 rias each year, and he later extended the lease for an additional year. And in addition to that, he purchased the rights uh, for trade at Arguum for 100,000 rias a year. But the king did reserve himself the option to purchase all ivory at a fixed price, just so you know. Now, Barros has a lot to say about all of this, such as that the contract allowed Gomez to buy one civet cat per year, that it, the original contract excluded Arguum, since that trade was reserved for the king's son, uh, though, like I said, he would lease that to eventually. During Gomez's lease, and I have no idea if, if he is related, maybe like the son of Diago Gomez, or, or how exactly they might be related, but they probably are. Anyway, during Gomez's lease, the Portuguese first discovered the traffic of gold at the place known to the Portuguese as Mina. And before the creation of the fortress of São Jorge de Mina, the first gold traffic of gold there was done at a village called Sama, a, a, a village of about 500 inhabitants. Now, Gomez gained, gained great wealth trading there, which he later used to aid the king to help finance the capture of Alcacer, Azila, and Tangier, and for which he was ultimately knighted and given a new coat of arms and nobility, a shield with crest, and three heads of negroes on a field of silver, each with golden rings in ears and nose, and a collar of gold around the neck. And Domina is a surname in memory of its discovery. This was all quite an honor. And Barros reminds us, the result of the fact that, quote, the trade of Guinea and the traffic of Mina were so profitable and assisted the economy of the kingdom so much through the good industry of Fernão Gomez that he deserved every honor and favor that might be given to him." Unquote. In the last year of Gomez's lease, he succeeded in finding the parts of Guinea where the Magaleta pepper grew, a valuable spice known to the Italians as the Grana Paradisa, and since Europeans previously had not known how to get it except through middlemen through the Trans-Saharan trade, this was quite a boon for the Portuguese. Now, in 1471, Fernão Gomes, to satisfy the requirements of his contract, which stipulated he further explore the African coast, sent João de Santarim and Pedro de Escobar down the Gold Coast, near the near to the point which eventually where eventually the fortress of El Mino was bit was built. Now, with that said, we don't know a whole lot about how ex exactly how far the ships that Fernão Gomez uh, sent out reached, or what they did when they got there, or, you know, anything else like that. But, in fact, there's a lot of conflicting accounts about what happened and who gets credit for what in the, in the 1470s and 1480s. But luckily, John Blake, who is the editor of Europeans in West Africa, 1450 to 1560, is a pretty good guide to help sort through it all. Now, the official 
Portuguese story, for example, is that the Kingdom of Benin was discovered by the Portuguese in 1485 or 86. But Blake makes a pretty good argument that Gomez was effectually able to have the entire coast beyond Mina explored as far as Cape St. Catherine by the end of 1475. Now, nevertheless, when war between Portugal and Spain erupted in 1475, for now Gomez lost his lease. Now, most likely this was because he was unable to defend his waters from the Spanish. And as we discussed last episode, the Spanish made a number of inroads in this time as they sought to win a share of the African trade. Now, we have far fewer surviving accounts of where the Spanish sailed to in Africa, especially after the war, but they are definitely there, trading in secret whenever possible. Now, Portugal, though, did get a bit of reprieve from their rivalry with Spain at the war's end, if you'll recall. The chief victory gotten by the Portuguese after their mostly disastrous war with Castile was that the legal rights which they were claiming over the African trade were upheld. The Castilians got rights to the Canaries, but the Portuguese continued to take the lead, as it were, in the race down the African coast to Prester John. Now, of course, they weren't merely exploring, they were also setting up shop. Zhao II, who has been called a perfect prince by Portuguese historians in the past, had a mind to set up a permanent base on the African coast, and that's why he sent Diago de, Az- <laughs> Diago de Azambuja to Guinea uh, in December of 1481 with 12 ships to establish a feitoria and to build a fortress named São Jorge de Mina, near what is today the Cape Coast. Now, notable for the future, a young Genoan navigator participated in this voyage. His name has come down to us in English as Christopher Columbus. And he'd arrived in Portugal in 1476. Now, he's not going to play a very important role yet, but you're going to want to remember his name for the test. Anyway, São Jorge de Mina was able to serve as the Portuguese commercial center for trade with various areas of the coast, uh, the Magaleta or Pepper Coast, the Ivory Coast, the Gold Coast, and the Slave Coast, as well as the islands of Sao Tome and Principe, and further, it could serve as a point of supply for expeditions exploring further south along the African coast. John Blake says that the Portuguese realized by this point that any attempt to conquer West Africa was doomed to failure. Uh, But they did want to defend their fatoria and financial interest by building a fortress. Portuguese conquistadors learned a lot about West Africa in the course of the 15th century. Blake enlightens us as to why, saying in summation of the Portuguese troubles, that Africa, quote, was an enormous country whose climate was unfavorable and the resources at the Portuguese disposal was small. So white settlements were not self-supporting. Food, and especially fresh water, were always in short supply. The colonists and garrisons greatly depended upon supplies from the home country, and the Guinea coast was a long and to some degree hazardous voyage from Portugal. Nor could small Portuguese communities in West Africa be defended against the overwhelmingly superior numbers of the African tribes without constant support from the mother country. Many who settled in Guinea found they could not even resist the rigors of the tropical climate. 
for many months, the mortality rate among them was high. Uh, many months of the year, I should say. The Portuguese, faced with so many obstacles, wisely did not attempt to carry out any large-scale occupations, unquote. Now, ultimately, the Portuguese would build three more of these fortified coastal bases, and they used them as trading centers. Arguam, Santiago Island, São Jorge de Mina, and São Tomé Island. Each eventually served different sections of the West African coast, and allowed the Portuguese to profit handsomely with trade as long as no raiders showed up to muck up the works. The most important were São Jorge de Mina and São Tomé, since they defended the gold trade of Mina and the sugar plantations of the Cape Verde Islands, respectively. Now, trade was the principal medium by which Portuguese influence was extended into Africa. São Jorge de Mina had a garrison of only 60 men in 1482, bombardiers and crossbowmen mostly, which was an adequate defense perhaps, barring outright full assault, but that was hardly enough soldiers to go campaigning. Now, as far as Sao Tome and the Cape Verde Islands went, they were initially colonized while Fernão Gomes owned the lease. He sent an expedition captained by Roy de Sequeria at the end of 1473, and who is sometimes given credit for discovering it, but we know that Diago Gomez and Antonio Danoli arrived first. And since the island had very fertile soil, perfect for sugar cultivation, a captain was put in charge of the colony in 1485. But the island was so far south that these initial colonization efforts were not very successful. But when King Zhao II became king, he put a lot of emphasis into overseas imperialism, and so when the Spanish expulsion of the Jews occurred in 1492 and a number of them uh, arrived in Portugal, Zhao realized what a great opportunity was laid before him to fill the island with the unfortunate uh, children of these Jewish refugees. So you can tell from that that Zhao II was obviously a really great guy. Now, in addition, of course, convicts and exiles were regularly sent to São Tomé, as they, uh, as were, uh, as they were to other Portuguese settlements on the African coasts. Now, Barros spent some time recording the deeds of the Portuguese performed in the time of Zhao. Now, he noted, of course, that already in the time of his father, King Afonso, that trade of Guinea as part of the revenue of his household. Quote, drew gold, ivory, slaves, and other things which enriched his kingdom. Unquote. As a result, Barros said that the spirit of the 15th century space race, to use my own terminology, of course, was strong within Zhao, who, quote, hoped of the discovery of India by these seams, who became ever stronger as each year new land and peoples were discovered. Unquote. Now, Barros. Um, if, if I didn't say so, Barros, excuse me, is a, is a 16th century, uh, Jao de Barros, uh, a 16th century Portuguese historian, he gives us a, a great insight into the past, and we're a lot better off for his work. But like Zerardo before him, Barros was a pro Portuguese propagandist as well as a Portuguese historian, so we should definitely keep that in mind when he tells us that the chief reason that Zhao ordered the construction of the fortress of São Jorge de Mina was that he was a very Christian prince who wished to build the fortress in praise and glory of God. And since that project was ludicrously expensive, what with the construction taking place not in Portugal but off the coast of Africa, therefore 
The only reason Zhao was doing it was that by building that fortress, that was really the only way that he would be able to get at least one soul to the faith by baptism. And this outweighed all other inconveniences. Of course, Barros mentions he that Zhao also knew that it was near the sport spot where the Portuguese and Africans had been trading for valuable goods like gold. So, missionary fervor aside, Barros tells us pointedly that the gold trade is why Diago de Azambuja was chosen to lead the expedition of 12 ships, since he was a man very experienced in the art of war. Azambuja and his fleet arrived on the African coast and once there, Barros tells us they went ashore and introduced themselves to a local lord whom Barros calls Caramanca, and who G.R. Crone, the editor of my translation, says is probably a corruption of Quanim Anza, i.e. King Anza. Now once ashore, Azambuja and his men carried hidden arms in case of need. Azambuja and the Portuguese also assured themselves spiritual protection, immediately setting up an altar and giving mass, the first of those parts, according to Barros, to which he adds, this mass was heard by our men with many tears of devotion. And while Barros is, like I said, quite the propagandist, I definitely believe him here. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. They don't make religious people like they used to. And back in the 15th century, many of the Portuguese who sailed to Africa, and some of them for the first time, were terrified that this mass, the first of these parts of Guinea, would be their last mass. Disease, violence, and problems at sea could mean death at a moment's notice. Now, shortly after the mass was given, Diago de Azambuja drew up his men into ranks to await Caramanca, who had just left his village. Barros tells us that Azambuja waited for Caramanca, seated on a high chair, dressed in a jerkin of brocade, with a golden collar of precious stones, his other captains all dressed in silk. With the men drawn up in ranks, a long and broad way was made, up which Caramanca, who also wished to display his standing, came in with many people in warlike manner, with a great hubbub of kettle drums, trumpets, bells and other instruments, more deafening than pleasing to the ear. Their dress was their own flesh, anointed and very shining, which made their skins still blacker, a custom which they affected as an elegancy. Their privy parts only were covered with the skins of monkeys or woven palm leaves, their chiefs with patterned cloth which they had gotten from our ships. All, in general, were armed after their manner some with spears and bucklers, others with bows and quivers of arrows, and many in place of helmets, wore monkey skins studded with the teeth of animals. Those who were considered noblemen were followed by two pages, one of whom carried a round wooden stool so that the nobleman might sit down and rest whenever he wished, the other a war buckler. These noblemen wore rings and gold jewels on their heads and beards. Their king, Caramanca, came in their midst, his legs and arms covered with golden bracelets and rings, a collar round his neck, which hung, uh, which from hung some small bells, and his plated beard golden bars, and his beard plated with golden bars, which weighed down its untrimmed hairs. 
so that instead of being twisted, it was smooth. To impress his dignity, he walked with very slow and light steps, never turning his face to either side. Now, if you can, I'm going to stop here for a moment, if you can imagine the surreal nature of this encounter that the conquistadors must have felt upon seeing Caramanca. Here they are from a society where gold is extremely rare, but they've come to a part of Africa far from home where the king has so much gold that his beard is literally weighted down with the precious metal. Barros continues that Caramanca and Azambuja met one another, and the king took the hand of Diago de Azambuja, let it go again, and snapped his fingers, saying, Bere, Bere, which means peace, peace. This snapping of the fingers is a sign among them of the greatest courtesy that can be offered. After the king stepped aside, Azambuja was introduced to a number of notables who all snapped their fingers similarly, though the greeting they offered differed from the kings in that they wetted their fingers in their mouths and wiped them on their chests to dry them before taking Azambuja's hand, which proved they had no poison on their fingers. When the courtesies were all over, Azambuja began to tell Caramanca, through an interpreter, why he had come. Caramanca had already met with Portuguese previously, and so the Portuguese king thus wished to solidify this early relationship and offered him, Caramanca, the love of baptism so that Caramanca's soul might be saved. And now, if you can, I'm going to take a moment here. I would like you to imagine how surreal this encounter also was for Caramanca and his African allies as they listened through an interpreter while Azambuja explained not the Portuguese king's hopes for more and increased trade, but instead the tenets of Christianity, that there was a god and a devil and a Jesus Christ, and that what Caramanca really needed to do was be washed in holy water, which the Christians called baptism of the faith. Further, that if Caramanca did this, bathe in the magic water, he would always be considered a friend and brother, and the Portuguese would help him in all his need. And only after this extended opening did Izambuja follow up with, oh, and also, by the way, we've got all this stuff here uh, to build a strong house, so uh, can we please be allowed to build it? After all, if we did so, um, we would be able to help defend him if he ever did have any trouble, not to mention it would ensure he'd always have a steady supply of Portuguese merchants to trade with. Jao de Barros gives us Caramanca's reply, telling us that the king, quote, was a savage man, yet was of good understanding, both by nature and by his intercourse with the crews of the trading ships, and he possessed a clear judgment. As one who desired to understand what was proposed to him, he not only listened to the translation of the interpreter, but watched each gesture made by Diago de Azambuja. And whilst this continued, both he and his men were perfectly silent. No one so much as spat. So obedient and disciplined they were. At the conclusion, as though wishing to reflect upon what he had heard and to consider his answer, he fixed his eyes on the ground for a space and then replied, Karamanka had dealt with Europeans before, but Azambuja was unlike them. Nothing had astonished him, he said, no so much as the captain's arrival. 
On the other ships he'd seen ill-dressed and ragged men, who were content with whatever he gave them in exchange for their goods. But with he, the captain, it was otherwise. Azambuha came with many people, and with much more gold and jewels, and moreover with this new request, that he might establish a residence in that land. And from this, Karamanka conjectured two things. First, that the captain must be a very close relative of the king of Portugal. And second, that as a man as important as he, and had surely come on great affairs, well, considering the nature of so important a man as the captain, and also of the gallant people who accompanied him, Caramanca perceived that men of such quality must always require things on a lavish scale, and because the spirit of such noble people would scarcely endure the poverty and simplicity of that savage land of Guinea, Quarrels and passions might arise between them, and he asked therefore for the captain to depart, and for the ships to come in the future as they had done before. Friends who met occasionally remained better friends than neighbors, he ended. Caramanca was not interested in hosting a permanent Portuguese base, at least not as first. Azambuja was worried by this response, as you might imagine, since Karamanka's words and doubts seemed to oppose the building of the fortress. And so he continued to make his case. He replied to the king that it was merely for friendship and peace that the Portuguese king wanted to build a house there, and besides, he would store his goods in that house. And in so doing, the Portuguese would be trusting their lives and goods to a strange land far from help. Further, not only was he, Azambuja, not a relative of the Portuguese king, but one of the least of his subjects, and so strictly bound to perform what he had been commanded with regard to peace and concord in this work, that he would rather prefer to lose his life than to disobey. De Barros tells us that this response satisfied Caramanca, such that he clapped his hands and his aides did so as well as a sign of agreement, thus interrupting the speech of Diago de Azambuja, who, before he could continue, and after the noise had ceased, listened to Caramanca's reply, that he would be pleased to permit him to build the house as he wished, though he warned him that peace and truth must be kept, for should the Portuguese act otherwise, they would cause more harm to themselves than to him, because the land of Guinea was great and he and his men could build another abode elsewhere with a few sticks and branches, of which they had plenty. Without speaking further, Caramanca then departed, taking his entourage with them. And this was probably a bit stunning for Azambuja, for the Portuguese, all the bit more so, because with Caramanca having departed, it slowly began to dawn on them that Caramanca apparently didn't really care where they built the fort. And so they had free reign to begin building construction wherever they pleased. And the chosen location, as you might imagine, was an uninhabited island nearby. It overlooked the sea, and the next day, the masons who were along with the voyage began the work of breaking some of the nearby rocks to place the foundation. But when the work began, some of the local Africans were offended. They said... They could not bear such an offense against the spirit which they worshipped as God, and became, Barros tells us, kindled with fury, 
which he also tells us. The devil fanned so that they should die before baptism, which some of them received later. They, they seized their arms and on impulse briskly attacked the men at work. Azambuha was with the captains unloading munitions from the ships when he saw his men running to the beach and went to the shore quickly in assistance. Once there, he learned from his interpreter the true cause of the violence, that the Africans had not yet received the gifts they expected, and that they were more grieved at this delay than with offense to their gods, or, I should add, from the spirit of the devil, as so Barros is basically wrong on both accounts, and you really just can't trust these 15th century Portuguese historians to not propagandize at every opportunity. Azambuja, at any rate, to prevent further bloodshed, sent in great haste for the factor to bring a double supply of cloths, bracelets, basins, and other things he had ordered to be presented to the king and his chiefs as was customary. Moreover, to please the Negroes further, he rebuked the factor in their presence. With these gifts, they were content and their fury subdued. The Portuguese remained watchful, however, and, perhaps spurred by fear of another attack, quote, the work progressed so rapidly that in twenty days the outer wall of the castle was raised to a good height and the tower of the first floor. The fortress was called Sao George, and it was later created a town by a royal charter signed at Santorum on March 15th, 1486. Unquote. Now, after the completion of the fortress, Azambuja decided to burn the African village because, of course, that's the sort of thing that conquistadors love to do after successfully building a fortress. Now, Barros tells, makes sure to tell us that this was because the Africans, quote, committed so many thefts and evil deeds, unquote, but you have to wonder whether maybe he was just angry that earlier the Africans had killed some of his men who were building the fortress, and he wanted revenge. I, who knows? I mean, at any rate, Barros does tell us that this punishment established peace firmly, and that despite these two attacks, uh, trade at the Salmina increased steadily from that point onwards. Azambuja remained at the fortress with 60 of his men before and sent the rest home, although Barros tells us that enough dead also remained at the fortress, uh, where, they had, that where they had originally spoken the first mass, uh, that place became uh, a cemetery. And during the next two years and seven months that Azambuja remained, quote, they did not suffer as much from disease as they feared, unquote and that the prices and rules of the traffic became more settled. Now, Barrow's narrative takes a break from what he describes as the successful Christianization of the people of the Congo to document how the Portuguese came to build a Feitoria to trade better with the kingdom of Beni as well. And this country was visited first by Fernão de Po and later by João Afonso de Aviro, who like we said earlier, first brought back pepper from Guinea, as the king ordered the building of the factory in a port of Beni called Guato uh, in the aftermath of this. Um, and, and he did so because there were brought for sale a great number of slaves who were bartered uh, very profitably at the mina. And the merchants there uh, gave twice the value obtained for them at Guato than they did at mina. 
Unlike South George de Mina, despite these increased profits, uh, or potential profits, the Fittoria of Guato failed. Guado tells us that this is because the king of Beni was very much under the influence of his idolatries and sought the help of Portuguese priests to make himself powerful against his neighbors with European favor and uh, magic rather than from an honest desire for baptism. Now, to me, this sounds a little bit suspicious, not because it was necessarily untrue, um, but because it seems very true of the Congo, for example. Um the people of whom Barrows praised for their sincere and honest conversion to Christianity there, though in reality this was very superficial in most cases, and in other cases it seems that many Africans simply just picked and chose whatever Christian traditions they wished to add to their own indigenous beliefs. Um, at any rate, Barrows tells decidedly that this is the reason why Portuguese were recalled from Guato and the Feitoria was abandoned. And then he also manages to add in, quote, and also the officers were recalled, for the place was very unhealthy, and among the persons of note who died was Jao Afonso de Aviro, the first person to establish it, unquote. So, I think it's probably a lot safer to say that rather than Guato being a place without economic profit, it was a place full of mosquitoes, and not... Uh, and rather it was this, not that it was inhabited with especially idolatrous Africans, why the Feitoria there failed, uh, while um, Jao de Mina succeeded. Or George de Mina, excuse me, goodness gracious. Now, since Barros continues uh, after telling us that Guato failed, that trade did not stop there, but was merely made more inconvenient, since there was no nearby base uh, when merchants went south to Beni after stopping at the Mina, and he's basically also undermining his own argument that since trade was so profitable, it continued in Beni even after becoming more inconvenient by the closure of Guato. But I digress. As if I needed to convince you that disease is playing a huge factor in our story. Now, moving on. Uh, Zhao sent Diago Cao to Africa in 1482 after Cao had received quite a bit of distinction during the war with Castile by capturing a Spanish vessel called Mondanina. Cao made it all the way to the Congo, where he brought back captives, kidnapping some natives from the region, as was the Portuguese custom by this point, and also he left some of his men behind so that they could learn some of the language and customs of the country. Now, Zhao II was quite pleased with uh, Diago Cao's report once he returned, and even more so because he believed they were nearly around Africa and thus close to the Arabian Sea. But when Diago Cao was sent off again on a second voyage in the fall of 1485 and went beyond Congo to at least the midway point of the southwest African coast, returning to Portugal later, the Portuguese began to realize that they still had quite some distance to go. Now, that is not to say that they were dissuaded. The prospect of more trade with the east was enough to drive them onwards, and in fact King Zhao employed a number of different uh, strategies to try to uh, reach India or at least obtain more information about how he could get there. Now, Bailey Diffie and George Winneas are the authors of Foundations of the Portuguese Empire, and they call this effort quote, Zhao's triple play, unquote. And in short, he sponsors a push into Africa's interior, 
He sponsored another sea voyage, now commanded by Bartolomeo Diaz, and he made a concerted effort to establish contact with the East via the Mediterranean and the Levant. Now, of course, many Portuguese went into the African interior, but they mostly discovered that the Sahara was very dangerous, very difficult to, to traverse through, and in, addition, and in addition, it was super hot. Nevertheless, Afonso Aveiro managed to make his way inland and reached the, an emperor named Ogon, who was believed to be Prester John, since it was said he held as high a position among the African people as the Pope did among the Christians. Now, Aveiro discovered the whereabouts of the Ogon after the voyages of João Afonso de Aveiro, which had completed the construction of the Feitoria at Guanto. And de Vira reported uh, from there that the Ogon sig signified his ascent with a staff and brass headpiece, fashioned like a Spanish helmet, and he wore a, bros a brass cross around his neck, a holy and religious emblem similar to that worn by the Order of St. John. Now, you can imagine how giddy the Portuguese king and his court would have been at their prospects of discovering the Christian king of Africa by hearing uh, this report. And so, of course, the king, determined to get to the root of the matter, which inspired so much hope in him, began sending expeditions to learn more. He was certain he was on India's doorstep, and this wasn't exactly true. And also, Ogon obviously is not Prester John, but he did hold the title of the Oni of Ife, who the rulers of Benin in the 15th century accorded a loose spiritual allegiance, say Diffie and Winneas. And the result of this, once Aviro returned home, was that the Portuguese were able to send emissaries inland to Timbuktu and elsewhere within the North African mainland after having received the intelligence he'd gathered from the king of Beni and his diplomats. Now, with all that said, traffic between Europe and Africa worked two ways, and increasing numbers of Africans were also coming to Europe, as we've established. Barros documents the exploits of one such African in Portugal when he provides details about the accounts of a prince of Guinea named Bemoy from the Jalof country. But Moy did not come to Europe by the usual processes, that is to say, as a slave or slave trader. He came became because he lost his kingdom in a war. And the Portuguese king, seeing an opportunity to make an ally, sent word that he was to be well entertained and escorted hence with honor to the castle, where he stayed for some days, during which time he and his people were properly clothed in giving riding animals, and was treated in every respect as a sovereign lord, accustomed to our civilization and not a barbarous prince outside the law. Now, shortly afterwards, as you might imagine, Bamoy was back in Africa at the head of an army, well supplied by the Portuguese. And things were going swimmingly enough for Bamoy, especially considering all the aid he was getting from Portugal was on credit, and Bemoy was not paying back his creditors, which is to say uh, the factor of Guanto, uh, or excuse me, a factor at Guanto named Goncalo Coelho. Now, neither was Bemoy showing much haste to be baptized, which was something he'd promised to do in Portugal, but now back in Africa and on campaign still hadn't gotten around to doing. And the situation, like I said, was going great for Bemoy until that is, quote, Bemoy lost some battles and his power began to wane, unquote. 
So he did what he'd done before, namely asked the king of Portugal for help. He sent one of his nephews to Portugal to, with, to speak with King Zhao and ask for horses, arms, and men. The king answered that Bamoy needed to be baptized still, and all he was getting was five horses until that point. And Goncalo Coelho, for his part, could not believe that Bamoy had dared to ask the king for more help when he was already owed such a great sum. So when he found out that Bamoy had asked for more aid, he wrote a letter back home and explained that Bamoy was not paying for his goods and he was going home as a result. Now, Bemoy began to change his tune after all this, and Barrows tells us, quote, he became very sad because he foresaw his downfall, and he had received great help from them in the war, and also because he recognized that he must pay them what he owed in order to maintain his credit, unquote. Now, if you can imagine, just like that, King Bemoy suddenly found it within his power to find payment for the help and goods he had thus far received, paying his debt with the help of his people, so I imagine some sort of tax must have been raised, but we don't know the details of this. Um, now, Bemoy also explained that while he was happy to become a Christian, there was absolutely no way he was going to be able to lead his people who followed their own religion uh, if he just suddenly up and baptized himself and became a Christian. Now, he would need to have to convert them as well, he explained, which would take time. And look, aren't we trying to win this war first? Now, he promised, along with delivering the payment, that as soon as God delivered him from his enemies, he would convert to Christianity. Now, it turned out, though, that Bemoy received baptism in a bit of a different circumstance than as the result that he wanted, which is to say after a great victory, I guess. Because after another defeat, he was abandoned by all but a few of his men and he sought to save his life by fleeing. He went more than 60 leagues and eventually made his way to the fortress of Arguum, and from there took a ship, and that is how Bemoy ended up returning to Portugal, where he and 24 of his noblemen received baptism. Now, this celebration was such an occurrence that there were, quote, continual tournaments, bullfights, farces, and great evening parties. And not to mention the whole town was hung with tapestries. Unquote. Now, you might not think tapestries are cool, but you can go fuck off. Because you have a smartphone and a TV and the internet, and back in the 1400s, those tapestries were the bee's knees. And on a somewhat related note, that is to say, to continue speaking about the celebrations that were had, you can imagine, you might imagine, excuse me, that Bemoy and his people not having much access to horses historically, wouldn't be very good horsemen, but you'd be wrong. And that is why Bamoy, who was renamed Don Zhao Bamoy, by the way, after his baptism, had some of his men ride in the presence of the king of Portugal, standing, turning, sitting down and getting back up again, all of this during a single race, mind you, not to mention some jumped off their horses at full gallop, keeping only a single hand on the reins and then leapt back onto the horses without losing a step. In addition, they picked up stones from the ground at a gallop and performed other entertaining tricks, and I mean, what with that and the fucking bullfights and all the tapestries, I mean, everybody was having a really great time. Now, after all the ceremonies came to an end, 
King Zhao decided to send 20 caravels south to Africa with the Moy to help restore him and to build a fortress at the mouth of the nearby river Kanaga. The expedition arrived under the command of Pero Vaz de Dacunha, who had with him, along with Bemoy, of course, many gallant men, soldiers, craftsmen for the building of the fortress, and some religious for the conversion of the Negroes. Now, unquote, despite what would seem to be the start of a successful fittoria, or at least an attempt at building one, instead something else happened. While the fortress was still incomplete, Bemoy was stabbed to death aboard the ship of Perovaz, who claimed that Bemoy was preparing a treason. This seems pretty unlikely, though even more unlikely is Baro's other chief reasoning, which was that Bemoy was stabbed to death because, quote, those people had not yet deserved from God the merit of baptism, unquote. Now, what seems more likely is a third reason which Barrows includes, which he says, a rumor, and includes as a brief aside, and which I think, though, has far more merit, that, quote, some maintained that what condemned Bemoy to death was the fact that many Portuguese began to fall sick because the place was very unhealthy, and that Pero Vaz was more fearful of having to remain in the fortress when completed than anything else, unquote. Pero Vaz made his way back to Portugal with haste, in fact, after the murder, the work on the fortress left undone, King Zhao quite displeased. Now, Barros tells us, though, that despite this, trade did not end between Portugal and the people of the River Kanaga, which is near the Gambia River. Barros also tells us that the sight of the great fleet actually increased the reputation of the Portuguese in that part of Guinea, since before they had only seen poor and ill-clothed sailors, so they had not formed a very high opinion of the king, despite all the interpreters that had told them otherwise. But when they saw so many ships, so many gallant people, and such warlike equipment, the friendship of the king came to be much more highly appreciated, Barros tells us. And not to mention, he adds, no shortage of African princes saw how Bemoy had been helped. Intercourse increased so greatly, in fact, Barros tells us, that the king sent out another expedition to learn more of the interior and to find Prester Jean. But so far, but so far south, all that happened is that nearly anyone he sent down there died of disease. Now, not that a little death stopped anyone. The danger of Africa, represented for Europeans, was matched, if not exceeded, by their excitement for the potential of wealth. Barros tells us plainly that, quote, nowhere in Portugal was there any yoke of land, toll, tithe, excise, or any other royal tax more certain in each yearly return than is the revenue of the commerce of Guinea. It yields us gold, ivory, wax, hides, sugar, pepper, and it would produce other returns if we sought to explore it further, unquote. Now, while all of this was in progress, Zhao was sending envoys to the east as well, intending to capitalize on the additional yields which might yet be sought, and they did so with somewhat uh, limited success. But the first 
expedition he sent was Friar Antonio of Lisbon and one Pero de Montarario. They went to Jerusalem, but because they did not know Arabic, they did not dare go further. Well, that didn't work out so well, so Zhao sent Afonso de Peva and Pero de Covilha next, with orders to gather information about the ports and navigation of the Indian Ocean. Now, this time, the emissaries chosen were much more suitable than the first two, or at least Covilha was. He previously was an adventurer who'd grown up in the house of Ponce de Leon, and after being hardened by the rough-and-tumble fighting ways of Seville, was a veteran, became a veteran of wars in, in, against Castile, and had participated in the Battle of Toro. He had also previously gone as a secret agent and penetrated the court of Ferdinand and Isabella. He had also been to North Africa twice and had learned Arabic there, and knew what sort of clothes to wear to blend in with North African society. I mean, really, uh, this guy is the Portuguese James Bond, really, uh, the equivalent in the 15th century anyway. Now, we don't know anything about the other guy, Afonso de Pavo, on the other hand, but I imagine he was no stick in the mud either. And at any rate, they left Portugal in May of 1487 with 400 cruzados, and eventually they learned, which was of great importance to the Portuguese crown, that it was possible to navigate to India by the Guinea Sea. Covilho was prevented from leaving Africa uh, when he learned this, because he learned it uh, from the emperor of Ethiopia, who forced him to stay there, but his report made it back. But technically, Bartolomeu Deus had long since returned by that point. More on him in a moment. The king already technically knew this, so, but Covilho's mission was still thought to be a success by the Portuguese. And, Zhao, and, 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 and since the Portuguese King Zhao hoped to become allies and trading partners with the Ethiopians, um, well, this was just great news. Now, the land-based expeditions didn't result in any direct wealth, obviously, but the information they garnered gave the Portuguese all the information, all the knowledge they required to be certain that they were on the right path to reaching India. Now, this knowledge alone, that they could reach India by going around Africa, I think would have led the Portuguese to the east one way or another. But plenty of motivation also came from the rivalry with Spain. Now, as we documented last episode, the Spanish were continuing to follow the Portuguese down the African coast, trading and raiding as long as they, could not, they weren't caught. And while the Spanish didn't really... I'd say make any important discoveries along the African coastline, they were ever-presently there. And that mere presence spurred the Portuguese onwards. Spanish mariners were competent enough that when Dutch merchants sought the help with navigation and pilots to break into the Portuguese monopoly, they often hired Spanish sailors. Um, John Blake, the editor of Europeans in West Africa, argues that the Spanish voyages were important, uh, despite making no um, discoveries, since they made it abundantly clear that the Columbine voyage of 1492 was not the result of a, some sort of sudden resolve or whim on the part of Ferdinand and Isabella, but instead because Castile had been engaged in discovery for more than 50 years her sailors feeling their way cautiously in the wake of the Portuguese. But Castile also found, after repeated efforts, that 
except in the Canaries, she could not overcome ruthless opposition by her rival, Portugal, whose rulers were determined at all costs to prevent others from sailing to the parts of her overseas empire in Guinea. Now, so while the Spanish monarchs largely ceased efforts to penetrate the Portuguese empire after 1480, interlopers from Spain and elsewhere continued to traverse into the forbidden waters, and Ferdinand and Isabella did not forget their goal, getting to India. Now, with that said, the Portuguese began their final push with Bartolomeu Diaz's successful voyage around the southern Cape of Africa and the report of Pero do Cavila, which arrived later, but both of those meant that all that was required by the Portuguese to reach India was one more well-equipped expedition, which did not face unfortunate weather or mishap. But it would be more than eight years before the next expedition, known to us anyway. It's possible that others went. Now, mind you, Diaz, we didn't, I didn't really talk about it, but his crew mutinied and forced him to turn back after passing the Cape of Good Hope. So that's why he didn't reach India. Um, and that's probably why the Portuguese didn't write more about him, I should say, too. Now, with that said, we might excuse Portugal for not following up on the successes of Covilha and Diaz, since they were engaged in hard fighting in Morocco in 1487 and 1488. And in 1489, they were unsuccessfully attempting to build a fort on the island of Graciosa in the Azores. And then, in 1490, another gigantic fleet was sent to Morocco. The after, after that, the king's son Afonso died when, he fell, when his horse fell. And in 1492, the Portuguese were devoting considerable amounts of time and energy trying to deal with the uh, large numbers of Jewish refugees who had recently been expelled from Spain. Then, of course, the biggest cause of the delay, at least for Zhao personally, was that he died in 1495. His son, Manuel, ascended to the throne and married one of Ferdinand and Isabella's daughters, who demanded the expulsion of Jews and Muslims from Portugal as part of the marriage negotiations. And kicking out of the, all of the Muslims and Jews from Portugal seems to have taken up a good bit of King Manuel's attention for a couple of years before finally, in 1497, a certain Vasco da Gama embarked in a fleet of four vessels on July 8, 1497, his intended destination, India. And before we go along with documenting the voyages of Vasco da Gama, I want to make just a little bit of room for someone else who's pretty important and who is making his second appearance in this episode and podcast, finally, Christopher Columbus. Yes, he who originally was on the Portuguese voyage, which had started the fortress uh, Mina, uh, and like I said, the Genoan originally arrived in Portugal in 1476 and had worked as an ordinary seaman for some time, and during which we all know he decided to shrink the globe in his head. He also, likewise, enlarged Asia. He stretched it out much farther to the east than it, than it does. And he took this proposal to reach the Far East via a westward passage to the Portuguese crown, where he was promptly rebuffed, and then rebuffed again in Genoa and again in Venice. He sent his brother to England and France. No, 
and no. And finally, after all of that, Columbus abandoned his old ally and headed to Spain, where he obtained an audience from Ferdinand and Isabella, and we all know how that turned out. Which is to say, horribly, obviously they had no interest in financing such a dumbass scheme. Now, luckily for Columbus, I guess, he was not dissuaded. He appealed the decision and after, after that failed meeting, and finally, two years later, received his appeal. Which, of course, during that meeting, Columbus was rebuffed again. And afterwards, while the Genoan walked out in shame, a finance minister mentioned to Ferdinand and Isabella that, you know, Columbus had already secured half the funding he needed in Genoa. And with that, Ferdinand and Isabella changed their minds. And so the world was changed. Now, initially, of course, Isabella thought he was in Asia. And others thought perhaps that if he had not reached Japan, he'd instead discovered another chain of Canary Islands. More about that in series three. But why I bring this up now is that when Columbus returns from his initial voyage, he initially stopped not in Spain, but in Lisbon, where he met with King Zhao, who was forced to reckon with the idea that despite generations of Portuguese blood and treasure, which had been poured into attempts by successive generations of Portuguese kings to find India. India. Well, perhaps despite all of that, the Spanish had found a way to best him. Well, needless to say, when Columbus returns and stops in Lisbon, as Nigel Cliff states in, the bio in his biography on Vasco da Gama, The Last Crusade, that this visit was, quote, a bitter pill to swallow for the king, unquote. And I would certainly agree with that, because shortly afterwards, the Spanish monarchs furiously worked to have the Pope craft the Treaty of Tordesillas, and in fact, Columbus's voyage went west two days before the, Span the papal bull was issued, so it was in this context with Spain and Portugal locked in a furious race across the globe. This gave particular, a particular sense of urgency to the voyage of Vasco da Gama. And now that we have all of that context out of the way, the accounts of Vasco da Gama's voyage will be the last we will be looking at today um, for this episode. And I know what you're thinking. Okay. I guess I buy that part about the tapestries, but this really doesn't seem fair. For one, we are going past Columbus here, and yet yeah, right, but we also did that too, to be fair, uh, with the final conquest of the Canaries. But like I said, I'm arguing that what's going on in the late 15th century, as I said earlier, is something akin um, to the 20th century space race. And the goal of the 15th century space race was to reach India. And that didn't happen until after Columbus reached the Americas. And further, we need to talk about Vasco da Gama's voyage because the reality of what has been going on is that the entirety almost of our first series has been boiling over to that point. Uh, Europeans attempting to reach and then finally reaching the Indian Ocean by way of the Atlantic Ocean. 
Now, what Columbus does is attempt to win this space race in a different way, by sailing west, not south or east, and he thinks he does win it. A number of people in Europe also think perhaps he has won it, but he doesn't. Vasco da Gama wins it. Now, with that said, ultimately, what Columbus does is give Spain a lead in a game which they'd been losing for some time, but which ultimately proves to transform the game completely, since he discovers two complete continents which can also be connected to the Atlantic world. And now at this rate, at any rate, excuse me, now I have probably, I think, 20 or 30 years worth of episodes to do. And I want, then I want to get all of them. And none of that really includes much discussion about India or anywhere else in Asia, except as they relate to the Atlantic. And frankly, I'm not the best person to tell that story anyway. My expertise is in, you know, the history of the Atlantic. But I wanted to make sure to include Da Gama. Because even though we won't be going into many further details about what is going on in the, in the East in, in, in the wake of Da Gama's voyage which was just as transformative for world history as the voyage of that Columbus, perhaps even more so, since it took a generation for the effects of Columbus's voyage to become well-known enough for the Americas to become integrated into this new Atlantic economy. But Vasco da Gama, upon his return, immediately proved how lucrative the potential of trade with India could be. And if I may be allowed to use an imperfect metaphor, it's, it's like if this was all just an RPG, like a game of Dungeons and Dragons, Columbus makes this great move, which gives Spain the lead. And then next is Portugal's turn, and they're in a lot of trouble. And then Vasco da Gama just rolls up a natural 20. Boom! Game over. India reached. Portugal wins. After that, of course, in anger, Spain tries flipping the board over in disgust and realizes that America's on the other side and they've only been playing half the game, essentially, this whole time. Now, granted, this is not a perfect metaphor, but I am sticking with it. With all that said, talking about Vasco da Gama's voyage is in itself a little bit problematic. We only have one surviving eyewitness account. It's an anonymous chronicle or diary by one of the participants, we also have a few letters written by Italian merchants in Portugal and letters from King Manuel announcing the discovery, and the work of 16th century historians who probably did have records or access to records we no longer possess. I mean, surely Vasco da Gama wrote an account of the voyage, for example, or delivered some sort of report, but this has been lost to history. Surely the 16th century historians had access to it. Now, there's a bit of contradictory information within the accounts because of this, but most of it is minor. And we shouldn't lose too much focus of that because the expedition has such great significance. And for that reason, I'm going to tell the story of da Gama voyage with a great amount of help from the biography of Vasco da Gama, The Last Crusade by Nigel Cliff. So with that as background, Vasco da Gama was the son of a minor nobleman who obtained some distinction by serving the Portuguese crown in 1492. In that year, amongst all sorts of other things going on, a French privateer was attacking Portuguese vessels in Africa, and in the retaliatory attacks, da Gama managed to earn the king's trust. Three years later, he became a knight in King Manuel's household after Zhao died, and when he departed on his first voyage, he took four ships. And in all, 
between 148 and 170 men went with him. Along the mission were interpreters, Martin Afonso. He had previously lived in the Congo. We've spoken about him. He spoke several African languages by this point fairly well. For now, Martins, who had spent time in a Moroccan prison and learned Arabic, was also there. Nigel Cliff also tells us that less regarded, but certainly less valuable, but hardly, excuse me, less valuable than the noblemen aboard the journey were the 10 to 12 degradados, or exiles, who had been recruited for the trip from Lisbon's prisons, and whose job essentially was to go ashore in dangerous places to act as scouts or messengers until a later fleet picked them up, not the easiest line of work. But the one thing that really distinguishes da Gama's crew from the crews of virtually every other Portuguese vessel that had ever sailed, was that it was entirely Portuguese. The, port, the importance of this mission meant there was no place for foreigners on da Gama's ships. Now, things went smoothly enough at first. After a week of leaving Lisbon, the expedition came within sight of the Canaries, stopping there for supplies. And the next day, the first taste of danger uh, arrived. A dense fog rolled in. Paulo da Gama, Vasco's brother, and the captain of one of the ships, became lost. And for the next four days, things were a bit tense. But Paulo and Vasco managed to find each other on the high seas, and despite this bad omen, continued onwards to the Cape Verde Islands, where they resupplied again. And after departing the Cape Verde Islands, da Gama pitched out into the Atlantic, seeking to catch the same winds and currents which propelled Bartolomeo Diaz around his trip around the Horn of Africa. This was a tactic which shaved weeks off the alternative, which was to cling to the coast. And in this way, da Gama and his crew approached the Cape of Good Hope after having only been at sea for a total of four months. Now, even this amount of time, Nigel Cliff tells us, wreaked havoc on the ships. And so when they dropped anchor on November 8th in what they named St. Helena's Bay, it was necessary to careen the vessels. And so the sailors got to the task of cleaning and scraping the sides of the hulls of each ship one by one, using the tides and ladders to complete the task. The day after that arrival, Vasco da Gama went ashore in a boat with several of his crew and there spotted a party of Africans who were gathering honey by smoking out hives of bees which existed in the bushes of dunes of the sand dunes near the shoreline. And I, I want to point out how this shows how unconnected the world was before the, and parts of the world were. Um, this part of Africa, when the Portuguese first get there, they're busy collecting honey. Um, earlier, a, a, a northern, farther north in Africa, the Portuguese taught the Africans there how to how to gather honey. So, at any rate, uh, this is the sort of thing that is happening all over the world. All sorts of different information is growing. Anyway, okay. So, da Gama and his men did when they find these uh, honey collectors, beekeepers. They did what all good Portuguese hidalgos would do in that situation, which is. They crept up and grabbed one of the men, who was conveniently small in stature, and they dragged him back to the ships. The man was, as you might imagine, terrified, but da Gama ordered two of his slaves, two young boys, to be super-duper nice to him until the man loosened up a bit, at which point they gave him a few trading goods, 
dressed him up like a proper European, and sent him back off on his way, hoping that he would return with companions eager to trade. Now, needless to say, this did happen. The man returned with a dozen companions, and some trading began. The Portuguese laid out examples of cinnamon, cloves, seed pearls, gold, and they made gestures to figure out if the South Africans had any of these goods to sell. It turned out they did not. Da Gama and his men were a little disappointed, but they did continue to trade with the groups of Africans who continued arriving each day, exchanging coins for conch shell earrings and foxtail fans. And for future reference, made note that the people of those parts highly prized copper. Now, after this was concluded, the sailors proceeded to get in a bit of trouble for departing. Nigel Cliff tells us that two of them, Niccolo Coelho and Vasco's brother Paulo, saw a pot of whales while collecting driftwood and lobsters, and so they leapt into, the into a boat to hunt it, took aim, pierced one of the beals' banks with a harpoon that was attached to the bow of the ship, and in response the whale dove down in pain, and this made the little boat flip up and lurch into the now bloody water. Cliff tells us that the men, frankly, were lucky not to be dragged out to sea, though whether or not the whale escaped, we do not know. At any rate, all of these fun times had by the conquistadors came to an end, because of the another one of the sailors, meantime, one Fernão Veloso, had gotten into a bit of more serious trouble. Now, Veloso persuaded earlier Vasco da Gama to allow him to depart with some of the natives, so he could feast on some freshly roasted seal uh, served with roasted roots. And if that doesn't sound delicious to you, I'm willing to guess you haven't spent the last four months at sea. Now, at any rate, dinner must not have been going quite as well as Veloso hoped it would, because by the time it was over, he was running for his life, hollering to the fleet for help. There were some boats when he arrived headed to shore, but they weren't in too big of a hurry to help him. Apparently, Veloso had a loud mouth, and that meant he wasn't very popular on the ships. And since when he got to the beach, the Africans stayed back in the bushes hiding at first, the men on the boats decided to let Veloso sweat it out. But eventually, two armed Africans did run out onto the beach, and before the rescuers could climb out of the boats and get ashore, the rest of the Africans had emerged and unleashed a fierce volley of stones, arrows, and spears on the, at the boats. Suddenly, what had been in a humorous episode was now something that had put the entire voyage itself at risk. Vasco da Gama was on one of those boats and was amongst the men who were wounded, shot in the leg with an arrow. Before the landing party was able to retreat back to the fleet, now he solved his wound with a paste of urine, olive oil, and theriac, says Nigel Cliff, and, quote, salved his pride by ordering his crossbowmen to fire at will towards the shore, unquote. Gama left with his life, but he'd learned the same lesson so many other previous conquistadors learned in Africa, that these uncivilized pagan peoples were very capable of killing him, and they should not be underestimated. Now, four days later, the Portuguese finished their repairs, um, in which time no further incidents occurred, and they departed. Now, a few days later, they finally arrived at the Cape of Good Hope. But winds battered the ships, and for four days in a row, da Gama failed to cross into the waters of East Africa before finally, on his fifth attempt, on November the 22nd, da Gama succeeded in doubling the Cape of Good Hope. A feat accomplished only once before by Bartolomeo Diaz, 
They stayed in the nearby bay for a week, watching a mysteriously large number of fat cattle roam the shores. And da Gama was wary, probably in no small part because he was still recovering from his wound. And on December 1st, about 90 men emerged from the hills, and some of them came down to the beach. The Portuguese launched their boats to meet the curious locals, and as they neared the shore, the Portuguese began to throw handfuls of the little bells which made for popular gifts and jewelry items. And despite these auspicious beginnings, da Gama was worried about a surprise attack. So he had his men set up shop on the beach, since that way at least it would be more difficult to launch a surprise attack against them. But things went well. And in return for bells and red caps, the Africans gave fine ivory bracelets. And the next day, trading continued when 200 more locals arrived, leading a dozen fat oxen and cows as well as some sheep. This was cause for some celebration. And the Portuguese bought one ox for the bargain price of three bracelets. And after months of sea, tasted so delicious that the anonymous chronicler of the voyage of the voyage described the ox as quote very fat and his meat as toothsome as the beef of Portugal unquote. And really that's when you know you have some good beef when it is toothsome. Now, once again, as they had uh, on the other side of the cape, more and more Africans arrived over time. Eventually, women and children entire herds of oxen and cows, and most of the visitors stayed in the nearby low hills beyond the shore, while smaller groups of men came closer and did the trading. But in addition, sometimes the Africans danced and played music alongside the Portuguese as well. And everything was just going fine and dandy, until da Gama's men began filling the barrels of water from the ships. And in this part of Africa, water didn't come from rivers came from precious watering holes, and the older men approached and began to ask angrily why the strangers were taking away their precious water. Now, da Gama, faced with this situation, looked around and saw that an awful lot of the younger men were in the bushes with their weapons in hand, and Nigel Cliff tells us that at this exact moment, Vasco da Gama started, quote, to get a bad feeling about the whole situation, unquote. And Jesus fucking Christ, I love biographies sometimes. <laughs> anyway, da Gama drew his men into a huddle and shouted to his interpreter, Martim Afonso, to get away from the older men with whom he was speaking. Now, the Portuguese quickly retreated to their boats, strapped on their breastplates, strung their crossbows, and grasped lances and spears and lined up on the beach. And this show of force was enough to make the Africans back away. The Portuguese repeated too, though, since da Gama was eager to avoid killing anyone. He wanted to continue having good trading relations, but he also wanted to make sure, obviously, that the natives knew he could hurt them. So he ordered two bombards fired, which of course sent the Africans into a panic for a couple of minutes before some of them returned to gather the possessions they'd left scattered on the beach, and, and then they left the area for days. Now, in that time, da Gama ordered one of the ships cannibalized for spare parts and wood. Now, the Portuguese had used up enough supplies and had done enough trading that the ship was really extraneous, whereas the spare parts were in precious short supply. And when this work was finished, the men set up a giant cross before departing, whereupon they saw that the Africans had in fact not left, but had been watching them the whole time, and the Portuguese watched 
sailing away as they watched about a dozen Africans run out and smash their cross to pieces. Oh, other than that, I think, though, the mood was probably pretty exciting for the Portuguese. This was near the spot where Bartolomeo Diaz had turned back after his crew, so far from home, mutinied, and forced him to return back to Portugal. Now, the sailors on da Gama's voyage were probably likewise quite fearful, and their fears were confirmed when a terrible storm appeared, bringing freezing rains and winds, seawater, poured into the ships at faster rates than it could be expelled. Niccolo Coelho's caravel disappeared from sight, and as the tempest reached its worst, the men began confessing to one another. They were convinced they'd seen their last day, and filed behind a cross and prayed for salvation. But finally the skies did lighten, and with the light of the sun, they spotted the missing ship. The expedition continued and sighted the mouth of a river on January 11th, 1498, and so the captain sent out a landing party, which was approached by a large group of men and women, nearly all of whom were remarkably taller than the Portuguese. Da Gama met with the chief, and though the two could not understand each other's languages, Nigel Cliff said that it appeared to Da Gama that the chief seemed to be saying that the travelers were welcome to take anything they needed from his country. Da Gama, as you might imagine, was quite pleased with, uh, with this, and so he sent the chief a red jacket and a pair of red pantaloons, a Moorish cap, and a copper bracelet. The chief then led Martin Afonso, the Arabic trans interpreter, and some of his companions into the village, though he first put on his new outfit and stopped to loudly proclaim to everyone he met along the way there, how do you like my new jacket, is probably what he asked them. And anyway, uh, they got there. The, the Portuguese proceeded to name the country the Land of Good People, and it was a densely populated place. Afonso and the others in the village attracted, very quickly, a 200-person strong following the day after their arrival, where they stayed for five days, trading linen shirts for large quantities of copper, as well as replenishing their water supplies. Nine days later, the Portuguese encountered another, much larger river, and Gama sent a party to investigate it as well. The people here wore nothing but loincloths, and as a result of this, the Portuguese were, or at least the chronicler, was quick to notice the young women of the place. And da Gama and his men decided to stay here for 32 days, deciding that this, after their long journey, was the best place to rest so that they might enjoy the company of the attractive and sometimes obliging women. Now, topless women aside, the reason for the rest wasn't all fun and games. The dreaded scurvy struck the crew by this point. Many were seriously ill. They suffered from ballooning feet and hands. Tiny spots broke out over their lung, over their legs. Their gums puffed out so far over their teeth that they were unable to eat. Their breath stank unbearably. Their eyes bled and their eyeballs protruded from their faces. Those in the worst condition found themselves also developing superating wounds that left them paralyzed while their teeth dropped out. Thirty of da Gama's crew died in this fashion while the survivors stood by helplessly. There was no doctor amongst the crew, though there was a surgeon who of course doubled as the barber, and who, in the face of this mysterious malady, 
was utterly worthless. Now, da Gama continued sailing along, and on March the 1st found a group of islands, but since it was getting late, they couldn't really do much except weigh anchor and wait until the morning. The next day, as they began to navigate upstream, the ships were approached by seven or eight smaller boats, the men in which strung up a tune, and the Portuguese recognized the trumpets which were being played as the same instruments which the Moors of North Africa enjoyed playing. The islanders spoke Arabic, which the Portuguese found puzzling on account of how friendly these Muslims were. Of course, these Muslims were thousands away from any sort of crusade and had never seen Christians before, let alone have any idea who the Portuguese were. And after arriving, when da Gama visited the harbor, the, the harbor of the river and met the local sultan, he discovered through his interpreter, Fernão Martins, that they were in the country of Mozambique. The wealth of Mozambique actually stunned da Gama and his men. In port, alongside the Portuguese vessels, were currently four Arab ships, each heavily laden with gold, silver, cloves, pepper, ginger, and silver rings, and in addition, quantities of pearls, jewels, and rubies. This was the first evidence of the fabled riches of the East they had come so far to seek. Though, as Nigel Cliff states, they were also probably quite disturbed to discover that Muslims controlled the entire coast. But da Gama also learned that there was another island nearby, which was half Christian and half Muslim. The Muslim ships even had two Christian captives from the realm of Prester John. The proof of this being that they fell onto their knees in prayer upon seeing the saint's figurehead on the Portuguese ship. And meanwhile, the Sultan, though, and others, were, they were starting to get a little bit suspicious about where da Gama and his men had come from. Were, were they Turks? No, da Gama told them, but they were from a kingdom near to the Turks. And they didn't have a Quran on board because they didn't bring the holy books to see, and this satisfied the Sultan for a time, who had asked to see their Quran, mind you. But Dagama got in more trouble after that when he hired a couple of local pilots. And they, spending a considerable amount of time among the Portuguese, eventually deduced from observing their strange behavior, strange language, and strange ships, not to mention the fact that they do nothing of the coast or its pro produce, and that they refuse to answer many questions with clear answers. Well, it started to dawn on these two men that they had not been recruited to pilot for an exotic race of Muslims, but by Christians. And when they discovered this, one of the pilots quickly excused himself and sounded the alarm. Now, da Gama and his men were not on their ships when this happened, but they hurried to them now. By the time they were ready to depart, half a dozen small dows made their way from the island to intercept them, packed with Muslim fighters armed with bows, long arrows, and shields, and making demands to the Portuguese that they return to town. In response, Vasco da Gama ordered the guns to fire, and cannonballs roared out of the air, and at that moment, quote, Christians and Muslims exported the old bitter rivalry into new waters, unquote. Da Gama departed the next day, luckily still in possession of one now-captive pilot, and he set sail for more hospitable waters. 
Unfortunately, though, bad winds pulled the ships in the wrong direction. And soon enough, the Sultan of Mozambique received reports that the Christians had returned. Now, beyond the Sultan's anger, the delay meant that the expedition was now also running low on water. They couldn't get close to Mozambique, and the wells they tried digging themselves brought up brackish water, and anyone who drank from them got dysentery. The Sultan sent a messenger who told them that the Sultan hated Christians, and they'd better keep their wits about them. The pilot, meanwhile, promised to show them water, but when they looked for it, they got lost in a swamp, and so they tried it again the next day, in the daytime, and found the water, the hidden watering hole, but they also found 20 Africans guarding it, brandishing spears and gesturing for the Portuguese to fuck off. Well, Vasco da Gama wasn't really in the mood to do that and instead ordered his men to open fire. The Africans fled, and so the Portuguese got their water. Though their satisfaction was greatly spoiled, when they learned in the confusion that one of the African slaves they'd gotten had escaped and fled, and fled from the Portuguese, who were frankly completely perplexed that the man would go to Islam when he was a baptized Christian. Anyway, the next day, another Arab visitor approached the fleet sending another message from the sultan. He said that the strangers could look for water all they wanted, but if they searched for it, they might meet something that would make them turn back. Now, Gama didn't like that message one bit, and in a rage had his ships bear down on the town, intending to blast it into submission. He found soldiers on the beach ready to fight him. They scattered and hid behind wooden palisades, which the Portuguese fired at, very, very frightening, but otherwise mostly artillery barrages, uh, bombarded the palisades for a while before da Gama decided he'd made his point, and three days later, when the wind picked up, he left Mozambique again, this time with more success. And on April 1st, they spotted some new islands. But when their captured pilot mistook them for part of the mainland in the dim light of dusk, they were revealed to be islands the next day, da Gama, as uh, a consequence, had the man flogged. He did recognize the island the next day and told da Gama that it was an island inhabited by Christians, which was not true. It was Kilwa, which was the home to the most powerful ruler on the coast and absolutely not a Christian, but the pilot had been kidnapped and now flogged, and so who could really blame him for that a little lie? At any rate, da Gama was fortunate that contrary winds prevented him from landing on the island of Kilwa, because for three straight days he tried, before finally abandoning making contact with the people there, and instead made his way to Mombasa, a place where he thought powerful Christians also lived, or if the pilot told him that. Now, the expedition arrived at the walled city of Mombasa within a week. It was a very wealthy city, with a large harbor filled with ships which the Portuguese thought were dressed as if for some sort of celebration. So they threw their own flags as well, not wanting to be outdone, but Nigel Cliff tells us that, quote, they put on a good show, but the reality was the fleet was in poor shape. With many sailors dead from scurvy and many painfully ill, the ships had been undermanned for weeks, unquote. Da Gama and his ships arrived at Mombasa at night and were eager for the next day, but before that could happen, the night watchman cried out. A Dao was quickly approaching from the city. On board were perhaps 100 men, armed with buck, 
uh, bucklers and cutlasses. The Portuguese were able to line the decks just in time to block the Dow from boarding, and da Gama there proved to be an able enough diplomat to save the mission. He begged the visitors not to take offense. They were strangers, after all, and offered them food. And for two hours, a delicate parley ensued before the Dow left, during which time da Gama was able to confirm the pilot's knowledge that the city did indeed contain a Christian quarter. The next day, the Portuguese were greeted with a present from the Sultan of Mombasa, a sheep, and a crate of oranges, lemons, and sugarcane. Now, they continued to receive a steady stream of callers that day, including two men who claimed to be Christians. Da Gama sent back a string of coral beads to the Sultan, which, just so you know, was an entirely unremarkable gift on a coast brimming with coral reefs says Nigel Cliff. Anyway, da Gama also sent along the message that he would enter the city the next day, and he sent two of the degradados to repeat these friendly greetings and to reconnoiter the scene. Now, the degradados were treated quite well and got to, one of, and got to go inside one of the Christian temples, where they saw an image which appeared to them to be the Holy Ghost painted as a white dove. Their guides explained that there were many Christians in the city and gave the men gifts of cloves, pepper, and sorghum and were told of the great quantities of gold, silver, amber, wax, ivory, and all the other riches which could be found here. Vasco da Gama was quite pleased with their report. But a near disaster almost prevented da Gama and his men from getting ashore when they tried to do that. Um, since the tricky local currents um, turned the ships one after another and pushed them up against a shoal so that they ran into one another. Luckily, this didn't ruin the ships. And when it happened, though, there were a number of African and Arab visitors and slaves on the ships, and this was enough to terrify them. And they started running and escaping to a dhow, which was tied alongside one of the ships. And as the visitors left in such a haste, the kidnapped pilots hightailed it, and they swam to shore as well. But not everyone escaped from the Portuguese vessels. Two men from Mozambique did not, and da Gama suspected a plot. Why else would everyone suddenly hightail it? So he tortured those two men by pouring boiling water on them, until they told him that there were indeed plans to capture him as soon as the Portuguese entered the city. And upon hearing this... Da Gama ordered more boiling water poured onto his prisoner's skin. This did not change their story. And claiming that news of the Portuguese attacks at Mozambique had preceded them. Now, uh, the, the, the torture suspects, or excuse me, the, the, these unfortunate men, one of them escaped by throwing himself into the sea and drowned to escape his tormentors. The other was actually able to do the same thing a couple hours later. And afterwards, the Portuguese thanked God for once again saving them from the infidel's evil grasp, indeed. Um, well, later that night, the Portuguese contended with more trouble when two canoes silently paddled out to the fleet and dozens of men dove into the water noiselessly. They swam up to the ships with knives and began climbing up and cutting through the anchor cables. A number were even on the rigging of the mizzenmast, about to sever the ropes there of one of the ships when they were finally spotted and, sailed and slipped away. 
the expedition's chronicler tells us that these and other wicked tricks were practiced upon us by these dogs, but our Lord did not allow them to succeed because they were unbelievers. Now, luckily for the crews, trading for oranges and lemons and other fruit gave them their strength back. Now, they were still convinced that half the population of Mombasa was Christian, but they were troubled that they weren't getting any aid and concluded that undoubtedly a war was in existence between the two sides and that the slaves they'd seen were captured Christian soldiers and that the Christian merchants with whom they'd spoken were unable to do anything to help without the sultan's permission since they were only temporary residents of the city. And so on April 13th, Vasco da Gama ordered the fleet to set sail without a pilot and thus without the foggiest idea as to how one might cross the Indian Ocean. And because he could not find a pilot in Mombasa, he had decided to capture one on the high seas. He pursued a pair of boats on the open sea, and one escaped, but the other they caught. Inside were 17 Muslims, some gold and silver, and a great deal of corn. Many of the people on the boat attempted to escape by jumping overboard. As the Portuguese ships overtook them, they were fished out of the sea, but to Dagama's annoyance, none of them were a pilot. So they continued up the coast, and about 30 leagues north of Mombasa found another sizable town. At sunset, they anchored for the night, and their new captives told them that this was the city of Malindi, which is where they had come from, and that the Muslims knew that four Christian ships were in port at Malindi, and that those Christians would definitely provide them with pilots, water, wood, and any other provision they cared to name. They just had to let them go, of course. Now, da Gama probably wanted to pour boiling water on them, but he also needed the help. And so the next day, the Portuguese rowed one of the elderly Muslims to shore and told him to tell the local sultan that the Portuguese newcomers were the subjects of a great and powerful king whom the sultan would rejoice to have as an ally and also that they were headed to India and could really use a pilot or two. Now, unfortunately for da Gama, the people of Malindi had already heard of the fearsome strangers who had a habit of kidnapping passengers and crews of ships, so few of them were eager to trade. But on the other hand, the Sultan of Malindi was at war with the Sultan of Mombasa, and so his hearing of this wasn't necessarily a bad thing. He was eager for new allies, especially belligerent ones with fearsome-looking ships. The sultan met da Gama halfway to the shore, coming out in his own dhow and bringing gifts of six sheep, cloves, cumin, ginger, nutmeg, and pepper. In return, da Gama sent two strings of coral, three hand basins, a hat, some small bells, two striped cotton scarves, and word he would enter the port the next day. Now, that meeting the next day, when da Gama visited the city and stayed at the sultan's palace, went well. The Portuguese released their 17 Muslim prisoners and showed the sultan how much damage their cannon would do to his enemies, and that if he helped da Gama find India and return home, then his king, da Gama's king that is, King Manuel, would send a fleet of warships to aid his new ally. Now, Nigel Cliff tells us that of all the Indian Ocean cities ruled by Arabs, the Portuguese hit upon the one most likely to give them help. And after meeting with the sultan, the Portuguese met with the four ships of, from India, you know, the Christians. The Portuguese sailors examined these Indians with curiosity. 
They didn't really look anything like the Christians they knew, what with their white cotton shifts, full beards, and long, planted hair under their turbans. Well, yeah, these Christians sure did look a little strange. And they were also vegetarians, and that sounded pretty suspicious to the men from Portugal, whose daily ration included either one pound of beef or one half pound of salt pork each day. But when the Portuguese showed the Indians their altar of the Virgin Mary, with Jesus Christ in her arms, and the apostles nearby, the Indians prostrated themselves on the deck. And throughout the fleet's stay, they came daily to say prayers before that shrine. Well, that was more than enough final confirmation for da Gama and the other Portuguese. India was full of Christians, and Prester John was there. The Indians even chanted, Christ, Christ, or at least that's what it sounded like to European ears. Now, da Gama wanted to depart immediately. He'd obtained a pilot, another Christian from India, which delighted him. But the sultan managed to hold the Portuguese hostage for a week with celebrations, music, fighting, and other contests in an attempt to keep da Gama diverted so that he would immediately join in his war with Mombasa. But eventually, da Gama captured one of the sultan's counselors and held him hostage until the sultan relented and let the Portuguese go. Now, the Indian pilot had a map of the ocean which explained the winds and currents, and he was an experienced navigator. And he really wasn't that impressed with the instruments which the Europeans showed him, which, which they had used to help navigate, And he, since he had similar devices of his own. And when he showed these to the Portuguese, well, they just decided to let him take the lead, vegetarian or, vegetarian or no, and departed on April 24th, learning from their new pilot that there were many large cities nearby, both Christian and Muslim, and 600 islands. In fact, the Europeans had much to learn in India. Now, the Portuguese ships, led by their Indian guide, made their way towards Calicut, the famed Spice Emporium. As they neared, four boats approached Gama's ships, fishermen, which traded some of their catch to the Portuguese for silver, and from the men learned that Calicut was actually quite a bit farther off than they thought. This was the town of Capad another anchored town near Calicut. So the next day, da Gama sent a degradado who spoke Arabic with those fishermen to Calicut and waited there at Kapad. When he, the degradado, returned a few days later, he did so with two absolutely astonished merchants from Tunis, the Moroccan port, who could not believe that there were Christians in India. One of the merchants, whom the Portuguese call Moncade, asked them, quote, Why does the king of Castile, the king of France, or the Signoria of Venice not send men here? Da Gama replied, The king of Portugal would not allow them. Moncade, still full of wonder, responded, He does the right thing. Unquote. Now, the Portuguese were likewise astonished, I should say, since Moncade, as soon as he stepped on board their ship, exclaimed in Spanish, A lucky venture, a lucky venture, plenty of rubies, plenty of emeralds. You owe great thanks to God for having brought you to a country holding such riches. The chronicler records, quote, We were greatly astonished to hear this talk, for we never expected to hear our language spoken so far away from Portugal. Unquote. Some of the sailors wept for joy and soon all joined in humble and hearty thanks to the Almighty for this great happiness and good fortune. 
de Gama embraced Moncade and asked him to sit down with them, and asked if he was a Christian. His answer, no, and that he was from the Barbary coast and had come to Calicut from the Red Sea was rather disappointing. But he also explained that he'd met Portuguese sailors and merchants in his former home, and he'd always liked them, and he was happy to help. Vasco da Gama thought, well, I guess that's good enough for me. He promised to reward the man handsomely, and soon afterwards, the Portuguese entered Calicut, and there discovered for themselves the busiest port of India, a keystone in the international spice trade. The city contained a great bazaar, which stretched inland for a mile, with shops open and busy late into the night, which sold all the spices, drugs, nutmegs, and other things that can be desired, all kinds of precious stones, pearls and seed pearls, musk, sanders, agila, fine dishes of earthenware, lacquer, gilded coffers, and all the fine things of China, gold, amber, ivory, wax, fine and coarse cotton goods, both white and dyed of many colors, much raw and twisted silk, stuffs of silk and gold, cloth of gold, cloth of tissue, grain, scarlets, silk copper, silk carpets, copper, not to be confused in the one item, quicksilver, vermilion, alum, coral, rose water, and all kinds of conserves. The city was ruled by the Samutiri, who made all of his revenue from the customs he levied on this trade. But the Samutiri was not currently there, and while they were welcome to trade in Calicut as anyone who paid the customs, de Gama was inclined to introduce himself. And so he sent Fernel Martins to the place, to the palace, uh, down the way of the coast where the cemetery, where the cemetery was residing. Now, Martins gave the cemetery some letters from the great king of Portugal, which de Gama had brought all this way from Europe, and added that if the cemetery desired that de Gama would come to visit him in person, now, he would do so. Of course, the Samutiri had absolutely no idea where Portugal was, and so Martins proceeded to explain to him that it was a kingdom of Christians in a faraway place, and that they had endured many dangers to reach his kingdom. This was satisfactory enough to the Samutiri, and Martins returned with a large quantity of fine cloth and silk, and the message that da Gama need not bother himself with coming to this palace the royal party was about to set up set out for Calicut. Shortly after, though, a storm began to brew, and after experiencing severe winds and rain, da Gama decided to set out for the sea for safety. And so by the time he returned to Calicut, the royal party had already returned, and Paulo, Vasco's brother, cautioned, and I don't know if it's such a good idea to make the Samotiri. There's a lot of Muslims living in the city, and they didn't really have much assurance, besides the fact that he and many of the natives were Christians, that they were not in league with the, with the said Muslims, and they might kill or capture them. But this did not dissuade Vasco, and even though all the other officers took Paulo's side, Vasco and us party entered the city some time later. A large crowd gathered as they entered, and Vasco was led by the Wali, or governor of the city, and 200 of his soldiers along. Da Gama and 13 of his men entered, um, carried on palanquins as the Wali was, six strong Indians carrying each, which must have been really nice. And when they reached the city, the first building they saw was a church, which admittedly was a very strange church, 
but the priests seemed to be chanting Maria, Maria. And when they showed the Portuguese the statue in the temple, the Portuguese too knelt in adoration of the Virgin Mary. The priests gave da Gama and his men holy water, and then offered to them a white earth-like substance, which turned out to be sacrificial ashes, and which da Gama said, well, I'll put that on later. The walls of the temple were covered in portraits of saints. Weird saints with extra arms, but definitely an exotic species of saint. And after this visit, the Portuguese entered the city. Da Gama and his men were amazed at the nature of Calicut, unexpectedly frantic. Their entourage by this point after leaving the temple was almost 2,000 armed men, I should say. 5,000 more people followed them through the streets, since once they arrived, the Wali's brother joined them along, along with his entourage. His soldiers fired muskets into the air and played drums and trumpets and bagpipes, and the Portuguese were struck by this. It is a great delicacy of respect, more than was shown in Spain to kings, the chronicler tells us. They entered a vast, leafy courtyard and met with the Samotiri's chief priest. The excitement to get inside the place was so great that the armed guards which were taking the Portuguese inside simply slashed several men to death to make way. And in this fashion, Vasco da Gama met the Samotiri Timurulpad, king of the hills and waves. The Samotiri was arranged like a Roman emperor, on a mound of crisp white cotton cushions. The visitors bows, ple ple bowed, pleasantries were exchanged, and the Samotiri presented the Portuguese with bananas, which they stared at like confused children, since they'd never seen these before. And this caused a bit of a giggle, as some servants came out to help the Portuguese peel them. Now, Vasco da Gama declared that he was the ambassador of the great king of Portugal, and explained that he wished to be friends and allies. He said King Manuel's ancestors looked for India for 60 frickin' years. They'd spent a fortune, and numerous captains had died or been forced to turn home. Now, he was a little nervous, though, in saying all this. Because he realized, now, if not sometime earlier, that since the only way he had to communicate with the Samotiria was via Arabic translators, well, that meant that anything he said was at risk of being learned by Muslims. And that, in fact, anything he said and translated through Fernal Martins was going to have to go through the Samotiri's Arabic translator, too. Well, beggars can't be choosers, I guess. And after the meeting, Dagama thus asked if they could have their own lodgings, at least, since now he feared attack at night by Muslims. Now, this request was a little bit odd and maybe even a little bit suspicious, but it was granted. Dagama then contacted the ships and some sailors, and brought some of the gifts which had been laid out for the cemetery to his new lodgings. There were twelve pieces of striped cloth, four scarlet hoods, six hats, four coral strings, six brass hand basins, one case of sugar, two barrels of oil, and two casks of honey. The next day, two of the cemetery's men came to inspect the goods. They burst out in incredulous laughter. This from the last crusade by Nigel Cliff. These were not things to offer a great and rich king, they lectured the suddenly stony-faced captain. The poorest merchants from Mecca or anywhere in India gave better gifts. Gold was the only thing that would do. These trifles the king would never accept.
de Gama, covered his embarrassment by explaining he had brought no gold because he was an ambassador, not a merchant, and that his king was unsure if he would reach India, and so did not give him such treasure. But if King Manuel ordered him to return to India, he would certainly then entrust him with a suitable tribute of gold, silver, and much more. The officials were unmoved, however, and explained that it was custom for every stranger who was favored with a royal audience to make an appropriate donation. Da Gama said he would go back to speak with the Samotiri alone and explain the situation, but was rebuffed again. His, the officials explained that since he was a stranger and there were large numbers of Muslims in the city, he would need an escort, and with that they left Da Gama to cool his heels. The experience was humiliating and exposed a very serious potential flaw in Portugal's plan to expose the to, to uh, infiltrate the East. The problem was twofold, though the Portuguese did not know this yet. First, although the powerful Vija Nengayar Empire, I apologize for probably having pronounced that incorrectly, which had been founded a century earlier, could be a powerful potential ally, well, even though it was a Hindu, not a Christian power, as the Portuguese would later learn, it was a land-based power. And the coastal cities, like Calicut, were practically independent city-states. And the keys to their wealth were the powerful Muslim merchants, who had long ago arrived on the scene, began intermarrying, and absolutely did not have any interest in Christian interlopers. The second part of the problem was that the Portuguese had absolutely no idea what was going on. They had stumbled into an ancient, intricate, and rich civilization comprised not just of Muslims and Hindus, but also Buddhists and Jains. In Bombasa, the Gama's emissaries had mistaken a picture of a pigeon Hindu god as an, Hindu, as an image of the Holy Spirit. In Malindi, they'd heard cries of Krishna, Krishna, and in their ears had heard Christ. In Calicut, they saw a statue of a local deity and assumed it was the Virgin Mary. And anything else that didn't make sense to them, like multi-armed beings, they simply assumed to be saints. The reality of the situation was that da Gama and his ragged crew, what remained of them, looked poor and dirty, and though they had been welcomed with great ceremony, it became apparent they had nothing more to offer than any common grocer might, and thus had made themselves look rather foolish, in comparison especially to the city's wealthy Muslim merchants. In sum, says Nigel Cliff, quote, Vasco da Gama was way out of his depth, and he had no idea where to turn, unquote. And I can tell you, that is a terrible place to find yourself in. After being rebuffed by the two officials, more visitors showed up. A steady stream of Muslim merchants, in fact, visited Degamo's lodgings and made a great show of ridiculing his rejected goods. And generally, because of this, Degamo was having a pretty bad time. But his men, on the other hand, were really enjoying themselves. The Chronicle reports, quote, we diverted ourselves, singing and dancing to the sound of trumpets, and enjoyed ourselves much. 
unquote. As for da Gama, he was far less jovial, and he was beginning to wonder why the Christians of Indians were such unreliable people. Da Gama met with the Samutiri again, eventually, and he wasn't very happy, apparently, with da Gama's claim that he'd come from such a wealthy kingdom like, what's with the lack of the presence, man? Just what sort of friendship do you have in mind? Now, da Gama's answer, that more was coming, wasn't really enough to sway the Samutiri's mind fully, but he did like the idea of more taxable goods being added into his kingdom. So he told da Gama that for now, he needed to take his stuff to the market and take whatever price he could get. Now, this didn't make da Gama very happy. His goods were pretty much worthless, and he'd already been told as much by a number of the Muslim merchants. And the only thing of value he could obtain in Calicut was to make a treaty with the cemetery, and that was going nowhere fast. Things got worse when he returned to his lodgings and saw there that the Wali and a large group of men were going to make him stay there, and they were not going to let him leave. Dagama wanted access to a boat to get back to his ships, but the Wali told him he was going to stay the night. It was way too late for that. Now, Dagama was super unhappy by this, excuse me, by this point, and told the Wali he was clearly trying to detain him, and frankly, that this was a very bad way to behave to a fellow Christian. So, da Gama and his men spent some time basically under house arrest. In fact, they couldn't even leave themselves outside without uh, getting an armed detachment of guards to go do so. And eventually, da Gama protested that his men were starving so that they must be released, even if he were to remain hostage. His captors told him that was fine. He just needed to order his ships into port first so the cemetery could have them. Dagama responded that even if he gave that command, it would not be followed. And after conferring with his 13 associates, who were stuck in the house with him, the Portuguese decided that the Indians definitely planned on killing them after they seized the fleet, whether or not Dagama gave the order to bring the ships in. So, Dagama and his men were in a bad condition, but the next morning received a reprieve. The Samotiri ordered Dagama to unload his goods without delay as he had previously promised, and that he and his men could be released as soon as the merchandise arrived. Now, Dagama thought about this. He didn't really remember promising to unload his goods, but he also realized that he didn't really have much of a choice, and so he explained in a letter to his brother Paulo that he was being held captive, but he was being treated well, and he was careful to say that, since he knew that... Uh, the letter might be read. And since Paulo was able to send over some, of, but not all, of the trade goods, and that if he, Vasco, was not released soon, then he was to return to Portugal, obtain a war fleet, and return to free him. Now, luckily for Vasco, this wasn't necessary, since when the boat arrived on shore with the goods, he was, in fact, released and returned to the fleet. Though, he left behind a clerk, and Diago Diaz to look after the merchandise. Now, the chronicler makes his feelings known to us. Quote, At this we rejoiced greatly, and rendered thanks to God for having extricated us from the hands of people who had no more sense than beasts. Unquote. Now, I think the reason that the Samutiri changed his mind was probably to hedge his bets. Perhaps he was wary, I think, that the king of Portugal might actually be pretty powerful, so he decided not to kill Gama. 
who promptly did unload his goods, and these received a steady, steady trickle of visitors, but no buyers. Now, I say that the cemetery probably changed his mind a bit to hedge his bets on, the pa- on, on, on what the power of Portugal might be, because he gave de Gama, in addition to his freedom, license to, uh, after his release to punish any of those who might enter the warehouse without fear of reprisals. So the Portuguese stayed for eight days, legally able to defend themselves from any potential Muslim attack, but they were also in an increasingly fraught atmosphere. In fact, Muslims spat on the ground and hissed at the Portuguese whenever they saw them. Now, things really just weren't going well. And so, da Gama finally began to agree with his brother Paulo that maybe it was for the best if he didn't step on Indian soil anymore. He did let his men continue to do so, though, in groups of twos and threes at a time, to prevent any large-scale hostage taken, and boy, did they appreciate that. Especially after they'd learned that amongst most of the middle and higher cases of India, the married women could take on something they called visiting husbands, and some of the more popular women, in fact, had ten or more. They went topless also, and besides the ability to maybe take on a part-time wife, Calafcut also had an complex system of courtesanship. And Nigel Cliff tells us that a result of this, the Portuguese, quote, thought they had arrived in a kind of sexual paradise, unquote. Of course, this isn't only this is only one of the parts of Indian society that the Portuguese commented upon. To them, much of India was a fascinating, if somewhat alien, experience. But let me tell you, for guys who were used to, uh, you know, I, I guess, uh, grew up with the nun down the street. I mean, I guess this was quite something for them. Now, anyway, by the time all the men had taken a turn, it was well into August and de Gama was more than ready to head home. And that is when he learned that if he wanted to do so, he was going to have to pay the Samotiri's customary departure tax before he could leave. And he learned this only after the Samotiri had taken Diago Diaz captive to make sure this happened, who de Gama had sent ashore to tell the Samotiri he was leaving. And so he learned this in an alternative fashion, from his old Muslim friend Moncade who visited the ships once more again and told de Gama that most of his problems were stemming from the Muslim merchants of the region, no shit Sherlock, who had been telling the Samotiri that de Gama was not what he claimed, that de Gama was a pirate, and since he'd presented himself as a merchant and ambassador, but failed to deliver on either count, since he had not paid the proper tithe, well, it was really looking to the Samotiri that de Gama might be just some pirate. So, in response to this, uh, with this information, de Gama sprang a trap on a Muslim ship with 25 people on board. He captured 12 of them, which included six nobles, and sent the rest ashore bundled together with a letter for the proposed hostage swap, and this occurred on August 27th. Though, de Gama did keep six of the hostages and made a new deal, saying that if his goods were returned the next day, he would release those hostages. Now, this could not have made the Muslim the merchants very happy, and the next morning, Moncave arrived again. He was pleading for asylum now, stating that his possessions were seized in the night, and he was fearful for his life. Other Muslims had seen him on friendly terms with the Portuguese, and had accused him of being a covert Christian sent to spy on their city, and so de Gama agreed to take him to Portugal. 
Now afterwards, some of the Samotiri's men arrived with the twelve bales of striped cloth and said that's what all they could find in the warehouse. Tagama told him to get lost, according to Nigel Cliff, thinking and said, you know, maybe I just better take these hostages back to Portugal as proof of my discovery. So, he ordered his gunners to fire the bombards, which appears to have served little purpose except for to have allowed Tagama and his men to capture some of their prize, pride, excuse me, and with that they sent off back to Portugal. Now, getting home wasn't easy. The Portuguese didn't have any understanding of the monsoon currents which controlled the Indian Ocean. And several days later, after having gotten almost nowhere, the Portuguese had to fend off a war fleet sent by Muslim merchants. Now this time, his cannons did not send the Muslims into retreat, and de Gama and his crew might have been killed right then and there, but a fortuitous wind picked up and sent them out to sea. Still, they were in the doldrums, and in 12 days after leaving India, da Gama's crew had only traveled 20 leagues. And by the time they made it back to the African coast, more of the crew were dead. It wasn't, in fact, until January the 7th that they reached the familiar Bay of Malindi. There, they procured food and water and buried many of the dead and dying. One would hope they let the dying die first. Da Gama was even more grateful for his ally and the Sultan of Melinde now, who once again showed him friendship. After the, this, they reached Zanzibar, one of the most important trading centers of the Swahili coast. They had missed it earlier. And then, on February 1st, reached Mozambique once again where a year earlier they had celebrated Mass and erected a pillar. In fact, it wasn't until the next summer that they reached Europe. On July 10, 1499, the first of two remaining ships that, captained by Niccolo Coelho, arrived in Lisbon. And a few weeks later, the tattered remains of Vasco da Gama's arrived as well. The journey had lasted 732 days and covered roughly 24,000 miles. Of the 170 men who set out, only 52, only, excuse me, 55 were alive now, but Vasco da Gama was not among them. He himself was not dead, but his brother, Paulo, who, uh, had, whose caution had on several occasions probably saved Vasco's life, fell ill with tuberculosis, which had taken a turn for the worse, and so, Vasco da Gama left his ship in the hands of others on the Azores. And one day, after reaching the island of Terceria, Paulo da Gama died. His brother buried him, and then Vasco finally went home. Now, Vasco da Gama was the last in a long line of Portuguese conquistadors who went south and established contacts with various rulers in Africa across western, southern, and finally eastern Africa before finally opening up trade in India. By the close of the 15th century, the Portuguese had drawn into their hands a considerable portion of African trade in gold, which previously had gone through Moorish intermediaries. In addition, they were receiving ivory, pepper, civet, and other exotic products, and above all, slaves. Now, I should go on to say that technically da Gama's story doesn't even end here. He will go on to have another voyage, this time with 40 ships. 
and his subsequent bombardment of East Africa and Indian, which he commands is what really makes him famous, since that is what fully cements Portugal's place into the economic and political landscape of the Indian Ocean. But to be honest, like I said earlier, I'm not really the best person to tell that tale. And not to mention between da Gama's two voyages is the voyage of Pedro Alvarez Cabral, who went to India. And he is most famous not for that, but because on his return voyage home, the ark he sailed in to get home was, uh, west, his western ark was so wide around the Horn of Africa that he accidentally reached Brazil. So we're definitely going to need to talk about that voyage. But, well, obviously we can't do that until first we get on with our second series on pre-Columbian America. So at any rate, the success of da Gama and the Portuguese before him was so sensational that by the time Portugal opened up these sea routes into India in the east, they were trading with so much of Africa and, 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 the, and, and the Portuguese desire for a monopoly on this trade um, put such an overwhelming demand on the resources of the state that for a pump nation without a large population, well, this is probably exactly the sort of situation that enabled Spanish, Dutch, English, and French adventurers to break right on in. But that, too, is a story for another day. And so, too, is what follows in East Africa, India, and the Far East, on the high seas as Portuguese and other Europeans follow in the wake of Vasco da Gama. That is a story I probably won't be telling, except for Cabral, who we certainly will be talking about. But nevertheless, despite my own inexpertise regarding Asian Henry generally, let alone Indian history in particular, and the fact that the Indian Ocean is absolutely not the focus of the History of the Atlantic World podcast, I thought it was particularly important to include what da Gama did here as as part of the as basically the conclusion of our opening chapter. Well, with that idea in mind, and considering I'm finally done with our opening series, I think I'm gonna spark up a J. All right. Anyway, that was saying. If it weren't for that goddamn Genoan accidentally discovering the Americas in the first place, and I guess what I'm saying is I've ended our first series here because the goals and motivations of the European conquistadors who went to the Americas was not originally to go to the Americas. They believed they were something like the Canary Islands or more hopefully Japan. And you see, if nothing else, Vasco da Gama achieved what all of this hubbub by European conquistadors had been about this whole time, or at least in part. I mean, I guess he didn't conquer Morocco or anything super spectacular in that regard. But, you know, what he did was important enough that I'm willing to call him the second great dude of history that we have encountered here on the History of the Atlantic World podcast, the, the brief cameo by Christopher Columbus aside. And really... Didn't I promise you we'd get to Columbus before the end of the series? I, mean, I digress, but just like Henry the Navigator, I mean, Vasco da Gama isn't really much of a dude, more of a Mr. Lebowski. Now, admittedly, he's more of a great, great dude in history than Henry the Navigator. I mean, I don't really like either of them, but Vasco definitely did a lot more. 
Sorry, the joint for it goes out on me. Besides, Henry's adventures in Cueto, when he was a young man, I mean, he mostly just sat around his castle giving orders, not really doing anything much himself. But Vasco da Gama, I mean, say what you will about the man. He participated in dangerous adventurism. He had a physical impact on his world. He achieved, for better and for worse. I think it's fair to point out, for the conquistadors, Henry, Vasco, Jean de Bethencourt, these were admired men because they achieved, they succeeded. Not because they were decent guys. The difference in perception between the beloved Jean de Bethencourt, who sold out his French compatriots to the Spanish in order that he could make a buck, and Don Juan Rayon, who waged a one-man vendetta against his Spanish countrymen, was basically that Bethencourt was successful, Rayon was not. I mean, I may be stating the obvious here, but the conquistadors were a bunch of morally bankrupt cutthroats who were willing to do anything they could do to get rich or die trying. And they had access to the necessary technology for them to travel around the world looking for places where they could do just that. And with that said, we met a whole lot more people than just the conquistadors, didn't we? African kings, Canarian guanartines. Some were men who profited in the from the Atlantic world, and were just as eager to engage in the types of sordid acts which the Portuguese offered them uh, profits in. Others, though, showed such bravery in defending their homes that I think their names should be preserved forever. Specifically, maybe, for example, the Guanartim Manandira, and how he clothed his men in Spanish garb and in a brave heart-like sequence fooled the Spanish and burnt their fort down to the ground. Occasionally, too, we got to see a rare glimpse of the life and trials of poorer men, ignoble, written about far less often. Yet, their lives were just as filled with passion and drama and tragedy. Men like a nameless African carpenter who raged and fought for his freedom. He succeeded only to discover that his children had already been taken, and there was nothing that he could do to return them. Oh, I don't believe, as I think I stated earlier in one episode, at least one episode of this podcast, that history repeats itself. But I do believe strongly, as a professor of mine, Dr. Charles Hoffer once told me, that it sure does rhyme. And if that's true, well, we, I guess we're kind of standing on the edge of something new here now at the beginning of the 21st century. And I think it's more important now than ever for us to take a look back and, and maybe, if necessary, relearn things that were once known. And we have the opportunity with history to pick and choose, like a buffet, to create any society we wish. Now, I know this might not be the most cogent point in the world, but to bolster my case, as... The famous bard once said, quote, There is more in this world, Horatio, than has dreamt of in your philosophy. Unquote. And that's pretty much how I feel. And to which I would add the African proverb from Benin, that anyone who sees beauty and does not look at it will soon be poor. So I think it's important for us to remember these stories, you know, to know what was lost. And for just as we must understand 
that not everything wrought by the creation of the Atlantic world was bad, but so too were good things were lost. And that's the reason why it's important, I think, why I feel it's important, one big reason why it's important for me to tell these stories, and, and specifically this story, and the stories that are going to follow this one. And that if I may leave you with one last quote, well, I guess the best way to state my point of view is to quote my favorite Bible verse. Now, you can read my favorite Bible book, uh, verse uh, in the book of Amazing Fantasy, Issue number 15, page 12. Quote, And a lean, silent figure slowly fades into the gathering darkness, aware at last in this world that with great power there must also come great responsibility. Unquote. Anyway, a bit grandiose, but that's some part of my motivation for this opening series, as well as my next, entitled People of the Sum, Sun, where I will tell the story of pre-Columbian America. Now, that one's going to be a little different than anything else we do, in part because I'm going to rely so much on archaeology and oral history instead of written accounts, and I don't know as a result if it's going to be as long as this series, but I think it's going to be equally important, and it's also going to be an awful lot of fun, since I'll get to cover topics like human sacrifice. Um, anyway, oh, and one last thing I do want to point out. Oh, uh, yeah, happy birthday, Dad. Wow, Coach Weiss is 70. May we all be at least that lucky. Now, let me tell you, that is one guy who will tell you that all birthdays may be created equal, but some are more equal than others. Anyway, until next time, my friends, always remember, Mas Aya. what I say. The captain is a tyrant and I no longer obey. I'm sick of taking orders from the madman in command. So let's drop him on an island and leave him in the sand. Cause it's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. And now we're taking over the ship. It's a mutiny. What's happening here? You're no longer in control and we're drinking up your beer. This is now a democratic, egalitarian pirate ship. So enjoy your trip. Cause it's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. This is a mutiny. And now we're taking over the ship.